hey, Wolfies, are you ready for the bite? We were constantly at that point making so many custom pieces that that costume shop just flowed constantly. They were like, why do you need a seamstress? And I'm like, well, watch the show. Like this, this didn't come from Party City, baby. <laughs> Mark me down as scared and horny. Like, I don't know, my mom buys the drugs. Pat, pat goes the shuffle. Down, um, down, down goes the body. Oh my God. <laughs> Werewolves just seem to be major stalkers. Derek will get a lot of practice at being wrong. Well, Let's okay. see if we can get that past the sensor. <laughs> Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kate Colvin, and I'm joined by... Calissa Mullis. And Will Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series, One Episode at a Time. And this week, we're talking about Season 1, Episode 2, Second Chance at First Line. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives, like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. This week's Howl Out goes to Alpha patrons Rachel C. and Kristen Konzelman. Thanks, guys. Hey, Wolfies, just wanted to let you know that this week's interview with costume designer Barbara Vasquez takes place entirely in the Alpha section. There was just too much spoilery goodness for us to cut out of the interview. Now let's get on to the episode. This week's episode is titled Second Chance at First Line. It's written by Jeff Davis and directed by Russell Mulcahy. On this week's episode, as the first lacrosse game of the season nears, Scott works to control his burgeoning werewolf powers as he meets pressure from all sides. Derek warns Scott that playing in the game will cause him to shift and potentially murder the people around him, but Scott is determined to remain on first line after being a bench warmer, especially when Melissa tells him that she's coming to the game, as well as Allison and her werewolf hunting father. To make matters worse, Scott and Styles find the second half of the body from the previous episode buried at Derek's house. Derek is blamed for the woman's death and arrested by Sheriff Stalinsky. Despite nearly losing control, Scott plays in the lacrosse game and scores the winning goal. Scott and Allison share their first kiss, but Scott learns that Derek was released from custody when the medical examiner determined that the woman buried on his property was killed by an animal. And who exactly is this woman? She's Laura Hale, Derek's sister. And the episode ends with Jackson getting one step closer to discovering Scott's secret. Dun, dun, dun. So the favorite quote this week is actually a little bit of an exchange between Styles and his father when Sheriff Zielinski realizes that Styles had been lying about Scott being in the force with him in the first episode. Styles says, so that depends on how you define lying. Sheriff Zielinski says, well, I define it as you not telling the truth. How do you define it, Styles? Reclining your body in a horizontal position? <laughs> We do have an honorable mention. This comes from Coach Finstock. Whenever he's trying to amp up 
Scott for lacrosse practice. He says, you think you can move faster than the lifeless corpse of my dead grandmother? And I think that just so perfectly sums up Coach. And he's absolutely just such a fantastic character. Isn't it that Coach Finstock and Styles are the only characters that still have the same name as the original? And Scott. Well, but the Scott's last name is different. Oh, okay. Because he's Scott Howard. Oh, God, I don't even know. I haven't seen the movie in so long. I do know that Coach Finstock <clears throat> is the same, for sure, because <laughs> there was a little bit, there was a really strange news article, I want to say it was last year, about a neo-Nazi who had somehow managed to work in, I want to say the State Department, so- somewhere in national government. And then it was revealed that he was a white nationalist. And his gnome de plume, if you will, was Coach Finstock. And I read a couple articles about it because it was just such a bizarro wackadoodle story. And one article said the name Coach Finstock comes from this 80s movie. And one article said the name Coach Finstock comes from this MTV series. So I was like, nobody seems to know which of these this guy is a fan of, although I can guess. The very aggressive (laughs) Teen Wolf (laughs) for your show. Definitely. He he is a white nationalist, but he's fine with the gays when they're white. Yeah, maybe. But regardless, what I do take from that, going back to what we were talking about, is that the name Coach Finstock is the same either way, because people covering this story did not know which of the two pop culture artifacts spawned this weird white nationalist's online pseudonym. I was just gonna say, it has been so long since I've seen the original movie that I can't speak to the character of Coach Finstock in the original. I don't know if he has the same kind of... How would you guys describe Coach Finstock on the series? Insane. (laughs) Just insane. High energy is what I'd say. A drug user... (laughs) <laughs> he, he he is very familiar with a drug called blow. So yes. it's, it's, yeah. Also, I'm happy to give uh, the 1980s movie responsibility for this horrible white nationalist who was using the name Coach Finstock because that film did throw the F word around a couple of times. Yeah, there is a lot of casual homophobia. Yeah, so they can have him. (laughs) I don't think probably the people associated with that. I would like to think that the people associated with that movie have changed their opinion. Yeah, have learned a lot since then and would really not like to claim that guy. I think that just, I would hope from all areas of pop culture, there's just a resounding no thanks to that guy. (laughs) We will not claim you, no. Uh, On the subject of uh, the Teen Wolf movie though, I would like to say we were talking a little bit about, did we already discuss like Styles' evolution of his costuming through the seasons? We have talked about it. I'm not exactly sure. Sure. I, I feel like the beginning of, you know, the episode they have, or the, throughout the first season, they have him in more like graphic tees after we get past the whole blazers over the graphic tees and stuff. And I feel like that is definitely a callback to the original film. And whenever I Google Teen Wolf clothing sometimes still, I'll get, what are you looking at, Dick Nose a lot? Because that's like <laughs> the big t-shirt that Styles, film Styles wears. What Dick are you looking knows? at, Dick Nose? I don't... Yes. I guess it's that was a, like an 80s thing, maybe. It's very 80s. Is that a... Th- I mean, I'm so confused. <laughs> what does 1980s oh, Urban oh. Dictionary have to say about it? Right? Apparently, <laughs> apparently Mac also wears it in one of the episodes of So He's Sunny. Well, that tracks. That makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's also a, one of his shirts says, Life sucks, then you die. He was very like, big into the graphic t-shirts. Original styles. OG styles. 
Sorry, I'm really stuck on what are you looking at, Dick Nose. Was this a reference to something? I mean, I don't know. I feel like insults used to be really weird. Was it Welcome Back Kata that used to use up your nose with a rubber hose? Yeah, Travolta used to say that. Maybe. Yeah, up your nose with a rubber hose. What? I feel like, though, that like <laughs> that thing was maybe a product of television, like when it was made, that like standards or practices were a lot stricter. So Travolta couldn't say up yours, you know, or something like that. So he's coming up with some nonsensical thing. And plus, I mean, like he wasn't even saying it ever like maliciously or whatever. I mean, it was dumb Travolta. <laughs> hey, you still like to use F- me gently with the chainsaw. And I'll never stop. That's a promise. <laughs> That's a promise with my personal guarantee. And when I do stop, you'll know I've been pod personed. What movie is that from? Heathers. Uh, Heathers. Oh, right. Yeah. We made you take photos of us whenever we did Heathers Halloween. I remember we went out to the the Santa Monica boardwalk and took some pictures out there. It was great. You'll hide your little croquet mallets. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. It's a great movie. Okay. Okay, actually moving into the episode. I love the intro to this one. Scott comes into the locker room already dressed for lacrosse only to then undress as he's having a serious conversation with Styles and then suit back up for lacrosse. I mean, it's just so gratuitous. And that just is just one of my favorite things about Teen Wolf is just the very gratuitous locker room scenes. Thank you, yes. Jeff Davis. Yeah, I, I feel like it It felt like it was almost continuous from the end of the first episode. Yeah, it's like the previous, this is moments after right, the, the right. end of the first episode. So basically you just walk right from one episode right into the next scene of another exactly. episode. Right. So it, it feels like a two-parter, almost. Much like Laura Hale's body. Oh, oh that hurts my heart, too Kate. Too soon. Ten years later, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> oh, that's rough. That's rough. Poor Laura Hale. We're going to get to her later, but poor Laura Hale. Listeners, as you're going to discover very quickly, many episodes of Teen Wolf going all the way to the end of this series run right into each other. Like we were a hyper-serialized TV show. We were not a show that you could just be like, oh, I hear that Teen Wolf show is pretty good. I'm going to start watching it halfway through the season and you, there's no way you'll ever catch up. And you're absolutely right. When you think about it in the context of not having a week off in between episodes for the characters where Scott is fully dressed, walks into the locker room, takes off his clothes and just because he's upset. Uh, it is really funny. And it really reminds me of Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec where there are several episodes where he gets upset and he has the uh, upset sweats and he has to just take his clothes off and lay down on something. And I feel like Scott McCall also has upset sweats. You knew I was going to do this. I feel like you tried to portmanteau that phrase. I think I tried to. Up sweats. Up sweats. He has up sweats. Yes, and I messed it up. And you you got it right because you're smarter at it. Smarter than me and better at it. <laughs> you, you, you just took it as a mistake and I took it as a neologism. That's all. I'm throwing all these words around that I don't know sometimes. Yes. Yeah, so he just walks in, takes off his clothes because he's upset about just learning that Allison's dad is, in fact, the same werewolf hunter who shot him in the arm with a crossbow the night before. And is also dead sexy. Yes, that is an indisputable truth. J.R. Bourne is quite handsome. Just going to be seeing a lot of him for the rest of the series and I ain't complaining. But Scott starts this episode in a super rough place. And of course, because we have to extend the drama over all the scenes, the next thing that happens is we go out onto the lacrosse field where they are having practice and he and Jackson get into a bit of a, not tussles the right word, but Jackson clearly has it out for Scott. And of course, so he and Scott are facing off on the cross field. He hurts Scott and then Scott wolfs out a little bit and hurts Jackson too. 
and I think sends him to the hospital. Is that right? Yeah, he gets a, well, he doesn't send him to the hospital. He gets a separated shoulder is what Styles tells him later. We do that see sucks. him in the hospital because Lydia is making him get like a cortisone shot so that he can play at full capacity. Lydia she doesn't is date like... losers. <laughs> Among other things, she likes him to be at full capacity is what we're saying. Absolutely. So on the lacrosse field, is that the first time we hear Greenberg mentioned? It is. Now, Greenberg is just a running joke of the series. And I don't know if we want to put that under spoilers, but we never find out who Greenberg is. We just get references throughout. Is he a figment of coach's imagination? That's what I believe. I believe there is no Greenberg. Everyone just, they just go along with his delusions. He's just like concocted someone to like take all of his frustration out on. So after Scott does a little bit of wolfing out on the field, he comes back into the locker room and attacks Styles. Thank God the entire rest of the lacrosse team seems to have, have disappeared. I don't know where they went. Went to a different locker room, whatever. But Scott attacks Styles who uses a fire extinguisher to calm his tits down and make him return back to human. It's like spraying your dog in the face with a water bottle, right? It's similar concept, right? I think so. Well, that's all Styles needs. When Scott's getting all rowdy, he just says, squirt bottle, squirt bottle, <laughs> like my sister does to her great Dane. It works. He sits down. You he want me to sit. slap your nose with the newspaper? Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Oh. Scott, is that what you want? Print media is dead, but I'll figure it out. So Scott's having a pretty rough day at school. And when he gets home, it's not that much better because Melissa comes in and sees how beat up he is and immediately thinks he's on drugs. Did y'all ever have that experience with your parents? Did they just think y'all were on drugs? No, my mom wanted to give me drugs because I was so lame. She's like, just here, do some drugs. Oh, same same for me. I, I think my mom was tired of hearing other parents say, I wish my kid would be friends with your kid because then I would know that they would never get into any trouble. <laughs> I was Fucking just goody so lame. We were both lame. That's, yeah, that's why we're friends with you, Will, because you understand. Oh, yeah. I was hadn't equally... done the marijuana till we met you, and then he did it legally, so. So Scott's having a pretty rough day at school, and when he gets home, it doesn't get a lot better, because when he gets in, Melissa immediately confronts him and thinks he's doing the drugs, and he sort of gets back at her by asking, has she done any drugs? And instead of saying anything else, she leaves. She's a cool mom. She is a cool mom. Melissa is Mama McCall, as I like to call her, and many other people like to call her as well. Mama McCall is probably the best parent on the show. I feel like I can say that after one whole episode that we have seen. (laughs) The sheriff is um, a pretty good dad. That's true. Sheriff is a pretty good dad. He is the cop dad I wish I had. (laughs) Yes. Papa Papa Stolinski. It's a fun joke because my dad really is a cop. That's a true fact, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Calissa used to play with the handcuffs and dream of growing up to be a magician, not at all like her father. And that is actually a quote that's on Kate's Facebook where she quoted me. Anyway, one of my favorite scenes of the first season actually comes up next where Scott and Styles are doing the equivalent of FaceTime or whatever. And the, they're talking and it starts like buffering and Styles is trying to tell Scott something really important. So he types it out that there's someone behind him. And that's whenever Derek grabs Scott and pushes him up against the wall. And it's such a classic horror movie beat. Yeah, it's, it's so good. And yeah, I love the incorporation of the technology there. That was before like, you know, searching and Facebook unfriended, all that stuff was hip. <laughs> 
And what Derek warns Scott, he says, you know, if he plays in the game, he'll kill him because he's already seen Scott shift on the field and he doesn't want people to know. He says, it's not just the hunters that are after us, it's everyone. So then the next day, of course, after hearing what Derek said about killing him, if Scott shifts in the middle of the game, Scott goes to coach and tells him he just can't play anymore. But coach is not having it. And this is a great scene because... It just immediately, you get two things from Coach in this scene that I really love. The first is, is that he's always looking out for his players and the students he teaches because Coach is like, is it a girl thing? Is it a guy thing? Because, you know, you know, Danny, our girl, he's single. You know, you want, I can talk to him for you. Danny's gay. You, you know, Danny's gay and all this. And, and it's just great because like, no, 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 it's, it's not, it's. It's not about that. He's like, what? You don't think Danny's attractive? It's like, no, no, he's attractive. And all this. He's like it's, offended on Danny's yes, back. He, yes, he's he is offended. That's a good-looking kid. Exactly. Like. He is offended on his student's part that someone didn't find him attractive. It, it's great because that's the first thing you get about Coach. In, Coach in, is know, a good guy. Coach is a good guy. And he's he looking out for his students. And the second thing you get is that he looks out for his students as long as they play lacrosse. So he, he basically... Te- it's he won't conditional. Take- <laughs> it's conditional. It is conditional, but he does take... He won't take no for an answer from Scott. And he's basically like, you're playing. And there's nothing you can do about it. And of course, because Scott's kind of pliable like that, you know, he's like, okay, I guess I have to play. So yep, damn straight you do. And it's fantastic. It's just I'm a great scene. Look- Scott wants to make everyone happy, except for Derek Hale. He does not care about making Derek happy. Exactly. He does not care about making Derek happy, but everyone else is fair game because he, <laughs> Scott's a good kid. You know, he wants people to like him and all that. And he, he, he's always trying to do what he thinks is right. And a lot of times he believes that is doing what other people want. And He can be uh, a little bit of a pleaser. He can be a little bit of a pleaser, which is adorable, but also could probably lead to some problem at some point, I guess. And certainly is about to, really. Yes, (laughs) it is certainly about. Right here in this episode. Yes, this whole episode is nothing but Scott being pulled in all these different directions by people who want different things. And granted, Melissa and Allison, you know, they want the best for Scott because they don't know. They don't have this other information. Coach is just selfish. He wants to win, like, lacrosse trophies and stuff like that he just wants to have a great team but of course melissa and allison are just like oh we're so proud of you your first line we want to come see you play and he's like yay you know because he's like i might murder people out on the field but you know i can't i can't play because i might murder people out on the field but then my girlfriend and my awesome mom are totally proud of me and want to come see me play so i i think this is just a great a, a great example of a storyline where Scott's just being pulled in so many different directions. It's very relatable. What do y'all think? One of the things that I really love about this scene, and and you touched on it when you mentioned how Coach talks about Danny, but I I remember reading this article or... Honestly, it might have been a Tumblr post because I was tumbling a lot at this time. I remember that the author was talking about how in so many movies and TV shows, the PE teacher or the coach of whatever sports team is oftentimes sort of the last bastion of enforced heteronormativity, right? That even as things change and become more inclusive, the the character that really tends to drag their feet the most in that department is that character. And Teen Wolf really just flips that around right away. Early on episode two, you have the the coach of the lacrosse team saying, hey, you know, if, it, if it's guy trouble, I'll help you out, man. What, you know, whatever it takes. We've got Danny on the team. He's out. 
he's great. He's single. We'll figure this out. I, I just, I, I really love that. It, it definitely sets a tone for the rest of the world of Teen Wolf. It absolutely does. It is, it is great because, you know, and kind of hearkening back to what we talked about in a previous episode where it's just like, you know, there's like no, there's just no homophobia in this world where it's just like, it doesn't exist. And it, it's, it's great having that, especially from, like you said, the character that normally in these types of shows is a, or these types of stories is like this hyper-masculine, super straight-laced character. And then Teen Wolf is just like, we are not doing that. We're doing the opposite of that, where we have a care, we have this coach who just cares about a student, you know, and it's like, if you're gay, great. If you're not gay, great. It's like, it's all good. You know, we're all happy. You here. just got to play. You just have to play lacrosse, damn it. <laughs> like, I will totally help you find a boyfriend or girlfriend, but you are playing lacrosse, god damn it. You know, so that's just, and it's just great. It's great because coach has, has just these two opposing sort of like forces that are constantly battling inside of him and one is looking out for his students and the other is we have to win every single lacrosse game no matter what and uh, orny adams is so funny he's very very he's very funny it seems like he just read it feels like he just read the pilot and was like i know exactly what i'm gonna do and just <laughs> did it and it's like okay this is what we're doing now you know like this is this is coach finstock I just picture him reading the script, sticking a fork into a socket and being like, okay, here we go. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. He has to be super, super energized just to just to do all these scenes because he does have so much energy. So Scott's just left coach and he gets a text from his mom that says, oh, I'm so happy. You know, I'm taking the night off, taking the shift off and I'm going to come see the game. So Scott runs into Allison and she says she's really excited to come to the game that night, which, of course, sends Scott spiraling. you know, a little bit because he's just getting pulled in all these different directions. But Allison goes to her locker, which you can clearly see is already unlocked in that shot that she's like doing the combination on. It's unlocked. It's already You're ruining the TV magic for us, Will. That's not magic. That's just magic. Magic. But, you know, she opens her locker and her jacket's in there. And, you know, how did that get there? Because the last time we saw it was when Derek used that to lead Scott out into the forest when he shifted in the pilot episode. And so how did it get back to Allison's locker? But then we get a weird werewolf POV from someone watching her. And I'm guessing that's Derek, right? So Derek's at the high school, I guess, making sure Allison found her jacket because he's... Creeping on teenagers. I, I wanted to point out in the previous scene, whenever he was in Scott's bedroom, that was his first time uh, pushing a teenager against the wall, but not the last. It will not be the last, certainly. Setting setting a precedent with Derek throwing teenagers against walls. But <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I was thinking about when we realized that Derek has left Allison's jacket back in her locker is... Werewolves have super enhanced hearing. So I bet they'd be really good at picking locks, right? Or or like breaking into safes or whatever where you where you need to hear that really faint click. Mm. I think so. I mean they'd make great wolf burglars. Hey, hey. hey. Don't know, Derek, would be, <laughs> Derek would be a terrible cat burglar because he would just break the lock. So he, he would punch through it and he that would just, is the right. He would just punch right through whatever safe. You know, he was trying to get in. He would just he would just start punching stuff. And that's fine. Everybody has but their own way. There should definitely be a werewolf heist where it's all about them using their enhanced senses to break into what's supposed to be some impenetrable fortress. Okay. Right. We have that episode later. <gasps> You're right. Don't be ruining it for people. Well, I wasn't. Because I was just saying 
that he would like that to happen. Yeah. And also, it does. And also that I think werewolves would be really good burglars. I agree 100% with all their their super senses allowing them to hear and smell and sense things that normal humans can't. To burgle. <laughs> so Scott has to go to class, and in his math class, he's doing a, a, a problem up on the board next to Lydia, and she, the whole time, is just manipulating the crap out of him. She's making him feel super bad for not wanting to play in the game, and she's telling him that the team is going to lose the game, and they're not going to be champions. That's just standing there like a poor puppy that's confused whenever she says that she wants Jackson at peak performance. He gives his little, like, confused eyebrow look. He is also doing math, and math is hard. Not for Lydia Martin. Not for Lydia Martin. She clearly, uh, effortlessly does the math problem on the board and sashays back to her seat, leaving Scott all alone up there at the board doing the math. So, yeah, he's doing math, and Lydia is just manipulating the hell out of him because she wants him to play the game so her boyfriend can be in peak physical condition like um, like uh, some kind of uh, segue that's on the tip of my tongue. Um, on the subject of what I want on the tip of my tongue, the next scene involves Derek Hale. Oh. Oh, oh boy. Well, Let's okay. see if we could get that past the censors. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, you know, Scott races his little BMX bike up to, up to the Hale house, and he's calling out for Derek, stay away from Allison. And then Derek teleports there like Jason Voorhees, and, you know... <laughs> and so scott's trying to get all up in in derek's business but of course derek doesn't flinch he just has his his cool calm stony demeanor as scott's trying to rip into him saying don't go near allison or anything like that but derek insists that he's looking out after scott and how do y'all feel about that i mean you know derek's like i'm trying to do you a favor here do you think derek is possibly maybe not using the best tactics to get scott on his side here he doesn't relate well to the human children (laughs) kate though i feel like kate would want to talk to talk about that porch scene though she talks about that scene a lot i do i i have thoughts so and i actually i will come back to Derek's difficulty with communicating because I have a lot to say on that. But first of all, in that scene, Derek jumps down off the porch onto the porch steps and he lands on uneven footing so that one foot is on a lower step than the other. And it's very smooth despite landing on uneven footing. And I don't know if he planned it that way because he knew he could land it or he didn't plan it that way, but he just adapts really seamlessly, but either way, I find his thoughtless grace offensive. I am offended by that as someone who has never felt comfortable in her own body or felt like she could drive it correctly. I just feel like he needs to stop being graceful and like thoughtlessly graceful. It's not even graceful for a cause, okay? It's it's like casual grace. And that is what I find particularly offensive. I still run into walls regularly. Kate can attest to that fact. I'll just be like, bump into it and then be like, wall. And then oh, just keep on where'd going. That, where'd that table come from? Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm just like, look down like a couple days later and be like, oh my God, I have this really horrible bruise. I wonder how that happened. I definitely did it to myself. I just don't recall when. So anyway, his wolfy grace, his, his wolfy... That makes it sound like he's like 
royalty or like a priest or something. Your royal grace. grace. <laughs> yeah. No, his like his lichen situational awareness then is very offensive to me. I just want to register that complaint. But register. as far as, <laughs> as far as the communicating goes, I think Derek thinks it's the best way to convince Scott. I just think he's also wrong. And mild spoiler for those of you who haven't seen more of the show. Derek will get a lot of practice at being wrong. Oh, poor Derek. <laughs> I, I love that character, including when he is wrong, which is often. He, I, just, I, he thinks he can threaten Scott into submission, but that is not how Scott works. No. Because he's... Scott wants to do, well, he wants to do what he wants to do, but he also wants to please other people. And yeah, he just can't be threatened into just disappearing. And But he can't, I, I mean, because... Since we've rewatched this, I have been thinking what would have been the most effective way to get Scott to listen to him. And while I definitely think that Derek's way was not effective, I thought to myself, well, obviously it would have been a lot better if Derek had just sat down with him and explained the the risks rationally. But then I realized in this episode, maybe not in the very first scene, but certainly within the episode, Scott does understand that Derek is saying you could easily kill someone on the lacrosse field. So regardless of how Derek goes about it, Scott understands that he could murder someone and makes the decision to play anyway. Yeah. So based oh, yeah. on that, I'm not sure what the most effective way would have been. Oh yeah, he, Scott was never going to make another decision. He was never going to listen to Derek, but it doesn't mean Derek is an effective communicator and was going right. to murder, yeah. yeah. I completely but agree, what, but yeah. What I'm, saying just... is I, I'm not sure what other, It's that was definitely not a good method. I just also don't know if there existed a method that would have worked. Oh no, there wasn't. What do you think, Will? I agree. I also agree that I was trying to make a lichen pun, but I wasn't able to slip it in there. Because you said something about his lichen grace, and I was like, I was going to say, so would you liken him to a bad teacher? Oh, I kind of I kind of like that, actually. Thank you. But I wasn't able to slip it in fast enough. That's the I'll save that one for later. Just act surprised when you hear it. Okay. And just, you know, oh, Will, that's such a good pun. You're so good at those. That's um, all the same reaction I had now. Just silence. Mm-hmm. But when Scott's at the Hale house, he catches a scent of something. You know, he catches the scent of blood. And when he goes to Styles and tells him about also, it. Also, he sees a very grave-shaped thing in the corner. <laughs> yes. And he sees a mound of dirt that is clearly like a grave a grave-sized mound of dirt next to next to the Hale house, which disappears when he and Styles go back to the house. So I'm guessing at some point Derek was walking around out there and he's like, oh, that's a very suspiciously sized mound of Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. But I feel like he probably tamped down that that mound of dirt and was like, now it looks less suspicious. Pat, pat, pat with the shovel. Exactly, pat. Pat, pat goes the shovel. Down, down, down goes the body. Oh my God. He was singing that the whole time as he was doing it. His little jaunty tune. That was right before Scott showed up. And then he like heard Scott pedaling really hard. And so he threw away the shovel, jumped through the window and just waited. And then when he was like, Derek, Derek, he's like waiting for the perfect moment to then just step out and be like, I was here the whole time, bitch. I 100% believe that. Absolutely. Kate, you were saying his effortless grace. I think he tries really hard. And I, I believe in my heart of hearts that he even practices 
his entrances and exits to make but them that, look effortlessly graceful. I I agree with that because the the hails as a whole have drama queens. They yes, they've really mastered the dramatic entrance and exit. However, if you recall in the scene, it's not an entrance or an exit. It's an appearance. It's no, he he's already been standing there. This is just him like walking closer. And that's, it's, it's so casual. That's why I find it offensive. What's the opposite of born salesman? Someone who couldn't sell water during a heat wave. That's Derek <laughs> Hale. Okay. Like he just is not that. I don't know. When he comes around, people get pretty thirsty. I'm thirsty right now. You're damn right. You damn That's right. That's good. Yeah. He's over here with like the happiest face. He, he is. He's, 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 he's high-fiving himself. <laughs> he does um, that a lot, guys. I do he that actually, a lot. He actually does. He really does. But I have That's this... because I don't live with my best friends and they can't high-five me. Yeah, I never did that anyway. I'd slap I... him sometimes, but I guess in his head he counted as a high-five. I, never I just did. missed his face. or <laughs> missed his hand and went to the face. Wow. It's a high-four. It's the next best thing. High-forehead. High-five! Um, but I, I have kind of a headcanon that wolves, that werewolves and humans communicate differently. And I guess this goes back to how much I love the boring stuff. <laughs> like, I, I'm just like sitting there like, okay, but werewolves have, have their own symbolism. They have their own cultural traditions. Like, do they have just different ways of interacting with each other? And, you know, are they more straightforward, right? More literal. That's the kind of subtle interpersonal stuff that would be really boring to see on screen. And I would just love to know all about that stuff. I would say that when you're saying that it's possible that werewolves and humans have different ways of communicating, I would say that if werewolves do turn out to be more blunt than human beings are moving forward with the series, maybe that's because werewolves has uh, have such a you know, heightened senses that they can hear heartbeats. So it's hard to lie or it's hard to not lie, but it's hard to sugarcoat. When you, when you know the truth from someone's body, like you don't really need to use euphemisms or things like that. It's just cut through the you, bullshit. Yeah. You cut through right. the bullshit. You just use, you just go straight with the relevant information. So maybe that's, maybe that's why it is, you know, right. it's just, especially if you grow up in that. So Maybe that's what it is, I guess. I mean, and it does make sense to your point. If you can always pick up on these emotive signals or the, the, the nuances of someone's pulse while they're speaking, why would you get in the habit of, for example, sugarcoating something? Like, we both know what I'm really talking about. Right. Why am I going to present it in these sort of flowery terms? Like, the yeah. reality is you're going to kill someone, so let's just get to that. You're going to kill someone and then I'm going to be forced to kill you to prevent further death. So let's just not do that. Like that's (laughs) to him. Like that is the most logical way to discuss the situation they're in. And I think, you know, for humans, they're like, oh my God, why can, why, why did you have to say it like that? It's like, because it's true. You didn't even ask how my day was going. Right. Like, like I, I love this idea that like werewolves don't do small talk, right? (laughs) Like first date with a werewolf is like, do you want to have sex? No. Okay, that's fine. I don't want to have sex either. Do you want to have kids? Yes. Do you want to get married? No. Okay, that's that's really good information. Thank you. That's a wolf date right there. The date between werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'd watch a werewolf 
dating show. I can tell that you're already horny. I'm also horny. Let's do this. There you go. But that's what Scott and Styles do because when Scott tells Styles about the scent he picked up at Derek's house, they decide to go to the morgue and see if the scent matches the scent of the half of the body that the sheriff's deputies found the night of the pilot. And they do go to the hospital and Scott effortlessly gets into the morgue, even passing by like a doctor. And the doctor doesn't even be like, what are you doing out down here in this dimly lit corridor that's clearly kind of spooky? And they discover that uh, the two scents match each other. So the part of the body that the sheriff's deputies found matches the scent of whatever part of body is buried at Derek's house. And so Styles is like, we got to go dig up a body. And of course, they head off into the night and head over to the to Derek Hale's house to dig up a body. And I believe... And I was just wondering... Where do you think Derek Hale is going at this time? I think he's going to the local Marriott because that house is very drafty and burned down. (laughs) The Beacon Hilton. The Beacon Hilton. I love it. Oh, (laughs) yes. He's he's staying at the Beacon Hilton. And because, I mean, mean, look at that house. Where is he going to stay? I mean, why? Why would you even stay? Why does he spend so many hours a day there? Well, because he knows that, you know, young werewolves and hunters and cops are going to be coming around. He still has information to learn because, you know, someone, as we are going to learn at the end of this episode, the woman buried there is his sister. So there are a lot of unanswered questions and the Hale House seems to be where lots of people are always converging. So you you know how Prophet sleeps in a cardboard box? It's a lot like that. No one knows that, Kate. But I do. And I appreciate it. I know that. Derek Um, Hale. (laughs) Derek Hale sleeps in that pilot. It's so good. It's so good. But Derek Hale definitely sleeps in a pile of ashes. Oh. I just oh, is, that what, is that what he's shaking off yeah. in the opening title he's, sequence? He's actually movie? just stretching in the morning. He's just like, oh. <laughs> Waking yes, up. You're making my heart hurt. <laughs> getting, getting like former family member Ash out of his eyebrows. Oh. Too much. Oh. It is. Those, Too dark. Those, all those kids. But, but um, yeah, I just wondered where Derek was going whenever he doesn't have any teenagers to stock. The Beacon Hilton. Well, now I know. It's great. It, it, it actually is. The idea of him actually staying in that house, or honestly, the idea of him being in that house at all is heartbreaking. It's very sad. It's, he's clearly just punishing himself. No, yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. There. You know, he wasn't, he didn't die. He's, he's, as far as we know, the last hail and his family burned up in his house. So, I mean, he's just punishing himself yeah, because other he has survivor's guilt. guilt. He has survivor's guilt, you know, that, that his entire family died, but him. And the only way he can, God, he's not process. even finding closure. Yeah. The only way he can process it is just by being physically present at the site where the tragedy happened. I really hope he's not sleeping on a bed of ashes. That would just be even worse. I think it's more than just. I think there's more to that guilt, but something we'd have to get into a couple episodes from now. Yeah. Later oh, half yeah. of the season. That it's yes. not just survivor's guilt. That, right. That there's more to that. There's more to this story. And as Scott and Styles discover when they dig up the other half of the body, because at the morgue is just the lower half of the body. And at Derek's house, they find the upper half of the body. But oddly enough, when they dig it up, it's a wolf body. Like a What? Wolf. Yes. Very shocking. And then while they're they're processing finding the wolf, they find a flower of a wolf's bane. 
And when Styles pulls it out of the ground to examine it, they discover that the Wolfsbane plant has been tied to a rope with little flowers tied along the rope. And when they pull it up, it forms a spiral coming, you know, coming out of the grave itself, which is, is really cool. Is this our first spiral? Is I believe this pilot? is our first spiral on the show. I think I, yeah, I think yeah. it's the first one. Yeah. So I you thought know. I just wanted to be sure. Oh, oh I, yeah. and I love... I mean, the the reveal is really cool of the spiral. Visually, it's, it's really cool. cool. Yes. Um, but it but it's also just you know as we come to learn the meaning of the spiral, and then you know later the meaning of the Triskelion, which Derek has a tattoo of. Again, the boring things that I want to know more about. I want to know symbolism. all about werewolf symbolism, and also do they have their own language? And, and she learn it. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes it's yes. on duolingo it, <laughs> yes. it's on I would, duolingo i would learn the shit out of that but i would think that they would choose sounds that they could approximate as wolves like hmm. parcel tongue in the harry potter universe that the, the guy who uh developed the sound of parcel tongue for the movies i mean he is a linguist but specifically he wanted to use phonemes that he thought could be best approximated by a snake yeah so that if you were an animagus who could turn into a snake and you spoke parcel tongue it would specifically use sounds that could best be approximated in both forms and I like to think that if werewolves in this universe had a language, that it would be like that, that, it, that they would focus on sounds that could be at least partially approximated in wolf form. But that, that's one of the things that I really like about Teen Wolf, not that they ever get into a language thing, although, you know, there, there's always time if they ever wanted to come back to that universe. But oh, yeah. um, it's just the idea of presenting werewolves as having a culture they have symbols that are meaningful to werewolves right they have terminology they have pack hierarchy they have like a cultural structure i love that idea it's very cool and it, it is i mean you're definitely onto something because i mean that spiral wasn't an accident derek didn't accidentally tie a whole bunch of flowers to a rope and then and then bury it in the ground in a spiral radiating out of the grave of what we think is a wolf but then once they pull up all the wolf spain the wolf the body of the wolf turns into a human woman which is with very creepy weird, eyes with very it's creepy eyes. her eyes are open yeah which it's is very very them. creepy brutal and i was wondering Jumping ahead a little bit to the end, because we discovered that this body belonged to Laura Hale, Derek's sister. Do you think that the buried wolfsbane around the body kept her body in a wolf state so that if anyone dug it up, they would find an animal and not a human being? Like it was some, it was like a way of protecting her, but also himself because he's bearing a body on his property so that the wolfsbane kind of covers up any, pot any potential that people think it could be a crime. Or it could be, or it could be going back to like kind of what Kate wants to know. It could be kind of like honoring right. the werewolves whenever yeah. they're buried to be more like the closer to the form they wish to take. Like, you know, mm -hmm. she was someone who could actually turn That's into cool. a wolf, which was kind of once we find out later on the rare side for werewolves to actually be able to shift into a full wolf. Right. Yeah. Calissa so, knows yeah. this is my headcanon because when we have written fan fiction together, that is definitely that that is my headcanon. Nice. Is that it is considered an honor to bury a pack member in a way that their body is preserved as a wolf instead right. of in their human form, that there's some kind of like, you know, because all cultures have 
specific ways of, of dealing with their dead. And I like the idea that for werewolves, it's this sort of acknowledgement and an honor to bury a loved one as a wolf. Yeah. It's kind of like returning to the form that kind of birthed maybe this species, you know, because we don't know how werewolf evolution works. One drunk guy the wolf. The end. (laughs) It's magical. (laughs) So much magic, guys. But what isn't magical is that Scott and Stiles go tell Sheriff Stalinsky that they found the other half of the body and Derek gets handcuffed and thrown in jail. So, Which part of that was perfectly acceptable to me. Which part of that? The, the handcuff part, yes, yes. The handcuff part, of course. That makes complete sense. Uh, that was like the steric moment of this episode. Yeah. Whatever. I'm not scared of you. Okay, maybe I am. But no, it's that's, that's great because Derek does do that whole, he's got his head hung low and he just looks up with his eyes and... Now kiss. Mark me down as scared and horny. I love that gift. It is just, it has so many excellent applications. Yes. It does. I feel like Styles probably has had, I guess will have, because we're really early on in the season. Styles will have a lot of very confusing danger boners. Yes. Yeah. That just, I feel like is the case. That checks out. (laughs) That checks out. So... But this is the scene where I mentioned earlier where there's a reference to the Teen Wolf movie. And this is that scene where when Derek is telling Styles that he has to convince Scott to not play in the lacrosse game, he asks Styles, what do you think they're going to do when he shifts on the field? Just keep cheering him on as they do in the Teen Wolf movie when Michael J. Fox's Scott McCall shifts, shifts, on the middle, court. shifts in the middle of a basketball game and everyone's freaked out, but he just keeps dribbling the ball because he's super cool. And then they start cheering for him because he slam dunks it. Seriously? Seriously. That's how that happened? Yeah, so Derek is taken away. Clearly, everyone believes he's the murderer of this woman because the other half of the body they were looking for was found on his property. Driving away from the Hell House, Scott has this major freakout in Styles' car, and they don't know what's going on, but then Scott discovers that Styles has taken the Wolfsbane rope from the graveside he has it like in his backpack and the wolfsbane causes scott to freak out and then wolf out and you know styles pulls over and scott escapes off into the forest and only bad things can probably come from that because the very next thing we see is that scott is climbing up on allison's roof and he's spying on her through the window while she's i don't look at your photos or something like that and perv wolf perv wolf and it looks like Werewolves just seem to be major stalkers. Major stalkers. They go hand in hand. They do. Werewolf claw does. and claw. Claw and claw. Ooh. Oh, so, I high five you for that one. Thank you. But who knows what would happen in that scene? Like, I mean, was Scott going to attack Allison? I mean, we really don't know. Because she luckily closes her drapes, and that causes Scott to see his own reflection in the glass of her window and he horrifies himself. And to protect Allison, he he leaps gracefully off of the roof and lands on the ground just to get hit by Argent's car, which is great. It's a great moment because it just comes out of nowhere and he just like gets hit by the car, rolls right over the hood and Argent's like, oh my God. And he goes to help Scott. And when he turns him over, Scott's back into his human form. So what we've discovered, the way to get Scott to turn back into a human from a wolf is to just hit him with a car. You know, Argent was just about ready to bury that body at that if he had killed him. Oh, oh no, no, 100%. no. 100%. Absolutely. If he had been down and that kid was dead, he was going to throw him in the trunk and then drive away. And Allison would come out and be like, I thought you just drive. He goes, oh, I forgot something at the office. They're Where's pouring the cement there. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> nice. Bitch, where's the lie? Nice. <laughs> you and, know he yeah, would. No, he totally would have. So Argent hits Scott with his car and is helping him to his feet. And Allison runs out and she's like, oh my God, dad, what have you done? And, and Argent, this is the first time Argent sees that Scott and Allison are pretty familiar and he's not liking it at all because he, you know, you, you know, the camera's shooting between Scott and Allison as they're really close. Oh my God, are you okay? Yes. That's so bad. And Argent's like, the in the background and it's great because Allison's like I'm totally coming to the game he's like me too and it's great Daryl Bourne plays the scene perfectly like he has he gives great face like of just facial reactions to stuff like you can definitely see he's definitely one of those actors that when you can see the wheels turning in for the character as as they're figuring something out or putting something together and then they're wolf does a lot of toggling between those modes absolutely absolutely based on these two episodes alone where it's like i mean we start the episode with scott attacking styles and it ends with a fire extinguisher and and just things like that where it's bad bad scott bad scott (laughs) where the show does find i think a good balance of scares and humor so scott having just been hit by girlfriend's dad's car, heads off to school for this ill-fated, supposedly, maybe, we don't know, lacrosse game. And the game starts and it's very exciting and and action-packed. And Mama McCall is in the stands and she's so proud of her son for making first line and she's, she's there to see him play. But the problem is, is that Jackson has convinced all the other players not to pass to Scott. And when this happens and Scott's just kind of left, you know, by himself out on the field and all that, he sees that Lydia has made a sign that says Jackson is number one and she gets Allison to help her hold it up. And of course, you know, well, that makes Scott mad because, you know, he's worried about Lydia convincing Allison to go out with someone else instead of Scott because he's going to make the team uh, lose this game, which is super important. So with all this stuff happening, Scott wolfs out on the field just like Derek said he would, but uh, he doesn't immediately luckily go into like some kill crazy rampage. But what happens is he's jumping over players and making scores. It's a lacrosse rampage. It's a lacrosse rampage and it's fantastic. But at one point, he almost attacks the, a player on the opposing team. But instead, he ends up scoring the winning shot of the game and everyone loses their mind because they win, except yeah. for Scott. Woo. Woo, yeah, yeah. Everyone's super excited, except for Scott, who races off into the night. I think this is a really cool scene, but I, I have to say, the one thing that kept running through my head as I was watching it was just how cold everyone must have been because every single breath out of people's mouth is like this billow of steam, you know? And it's like, it must've been like in the thirties or something when they were shooting it. Although that being said, you know, you got to suffer for your art. It all looks great, you know, like especially in slow motion and all this when, when Scott's got his head down and he's wolfed out, but no one sees it yet. And all just these big jets of, of steam are coming out from inside of his mask. And you see, like, I think there's even a shot of like one of the characters just like backing away from him, you know, and like one of the players just kind of backing up. And I think, was it like the the referees like you okay son and he's like yeah or something like that and it's great and it looks fantastic and russell mulcahy you know i think shot the hell out of the scene as he he's very good at horror and action and and, and lots of things but it's like the scene is just a great i feel like encapsulation of what teen wolf action is like where it's going to be very fast and very high stakes but it's going to look so beautiful what do y'all think about this scene 
It is, but I want to say that uh, Kate and I can attest as uh, extras that filmed for an overnight lacrosse scene, it was freezing. It's so cold. That was a California one, whereas this was filmed in Georgia, but we froze our butts off for lacrosse. And they did not want us to wear coats and gloves and scarves and stuff. They were like, it's California. We're like, yeah, we're in California. It's really cold. (laughs) But we'll talk more about that when we get to that episode. But yeah, I do love the action sequences on Teen Wolf and the lacrosse games. I'm not someone who's a fan of the sports. (laughs) And, you know, it's easy, I feel like, for them to look very boring on screen. But yeah, like, they did such a good job of making it visually interesting and also showing Scott, like, it almost feels like it could turn into a horror movie at any moment. Mm -hmm. And that works really well with Scott teetering on the edge of shifting and wolfing out and murdering everyone on the field. I think you're absolutely right, Calissa. It does feel like when you're watching this scene that Scott and the audience, you know, living vicariously through him, uh, it feels like we are just skating on a razor's edge of it's like, yeah, this is all fun and games at the moment and this is okay, but is he going to start ripping out throats? Is that what's about to start happening in this game? And luckily it doesn't. Luckily he's able to rein in the wolf and to to score that final shot and while everyone's celebrating race off into the night but you know allison sees him and so of course because she's concerned she's a very nice person and so she chases she chases after scott and she follows him into the high school and into the dark and creepy locker room where she's looking for him and you know she's looking around and she's calling out to him but what she doesn't realize is that scott in his wolf dot form is above her and is kind of creeping from locker station to locker station and along like the pipes of the sprinkler system and all that. And it's fantastic when you see it. Cause you're just, I feel like you're just kind of on, on Alice and, and as she's going, the camera just kind of goes low and you see Scott just right above her, just, you know, like almost like an arm's length away from her. And it's very effectively shot. It's very well done. It's, it's a great scene and there's a lot of great tension in it. Allison keeps looking around and she, she finds Scott's, in the in the showers in the shower bay of the locker room and when she touches him and he turns around he's he's human again which is unexpected because we just seen him as a wolf and so figuring out what what turned him human again will be i think something we take into the next episodes because after this moment allison and scott share their first kiss and it's very nice and of course styles is watching from the shadows like a creeper uh you like know a as werewolf. Best like a werewolf, as best friends do. He, he might as well join the club of all the characters that just... I, I actually think that's really funny that they're always like, oh, Derek, why are you always creepily watching from the shadows? And then it's like, well... I, I feel like they, they need, like, flashback mode where it just cuts to every time one of the other characters is watching creepily from the shadows. Yes, absolutely. And it, in this I agree. scene, that is Styles. That is Styles just like, oh, they're going to kiss. I'll just yes. wait right here in the show. Too bad that they could not get the police to provide any music for the show. Oh. 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 Nice. I like that. And I hate the police. <laughs> <laughs> that joke was just targeted for Kate's hatred. It, it was. I, I could tell. It arrives. I, I was I was being baited. Well done. But of course, like when when Scott and Allison, you know, when their little first kiss moment breaks and she's leaving, she totally sees Styles and she doesn't seem to care. She's like, hey, Styles, and walks out. So some people are into being watched. Some people are into being watched. Yeah. She just walks by and she's kind of like, oh, you're watching? Oh, well, let them eat cake. (laughs) Just like, throw some crumbs in your direction, Styles. 
No, it's great. It's great. And, you know, Scott and Styles kind of reunite, reunite here at the end of the episode. And, and it Scott, feels so good. It feels and great. It feels, it feels fantastic. Because so Scott is such like a little puppy dog here. He's had his very first kiss. And I can, I can relate. I totally remember my very first kiss. And I feel like I was probably acting just like Scott does here. It's great. But of course, you know, because we're a horror horror supernatural show we gotta we gotta cut that happiness with some with some mystery and drama and styles tells scott that derek has been released from police custody because the medical examiner who examined both halves of the body that they found determined that the woman was killed by some kind of animal and derek's as far as everyone else in the world knows is a human man and um <laughs> so they let him go he can't possibly be the killer and what's more is they discover that the woman uh who has been torn in half was laura hale Derek hale's sister so that is a a shocking piece of information in that you know like in the pilot we have you know the whole story starts with styles leading scott out into the woods because they found half a body and they're going to go and try and find the second half and then in the second episode they find the second half of the body but it's the sister of a character we know and so that's really weird and 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 terrifying but it's like what did this what tore laura hale in half and i love i love mystery shows and i love genre shows because i love ending an episode with resolution but also getting new questions that it's like every time you answer a question you are given like four or five new questions that will then take you into the next episode but then also right at the end of the episode we go back to the lacrosse field where jackson finds scott's lacrosse glove and as he's examining it he discovers a weird hole uh, at the end of the finger and he doesn't know what it is but clearly it's a claw hole you know that the claws from clearly scott is the coach's hookup and he uses that fingernail Oh, that's his cocaine nail. That's his cocaine nail. It's his cocaine nail. I see what you're saying. Yeah. There's an alternate explanation. First, it was steroids. I I think that this should have turned Jackson onto a cocaine line of inquiry. Ah, yes. Instead of where do you get your juice? You know, where do you get your blow? I love that. Like, I don't know. My mom buys the drugs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> she's a cool mom she is a cool mom i love that you know it ends with jackson you know he's holding the glove and then he turns and there's just a wild dare kale appears yet again yes standing in, the shadow, standing in the shadows watching yes. waiting just watching terrifying waiting. bunny rabbits and small children exactly. Yes. exactly he doesn't have tv so he doesn't have tv well we've seen the house he doesn't have anything so except the bed of ashes family ashes but I, I I wrote in the document, I was like, does Derek stand around because weird shit happens or does weird shit happen because Derek stands around? The you eternal know? question. The eternal question. No, it's good, but that's that's episode 102, second chance at first line. And uh, what'd y'all think of this episode? We gave so many thoughts along the way. Um, Overall. It's a, fun second, it's a fun second episode. You know, it just continues the momentum that we get from the pilot and really just, you know, hooks us in and makes us want to keep going with these characters and find out what's going on, you know, who killed Laura? I guess that's the new question. You know, Who killed Laura Palmer? Oh, wait, wrong show. Oh, wrong show. <laughs> who killed, who killed? Laura so this would be This would be Wolf Walk With Me? Not as good. Okay, we'll move on from that one. Wolf Peaks. But, Wolf Peaks. Ah. You, you could have gone with On Fire Walk With Me. 
Oh, that would have been really good. I'm not as smart as you are. Oh, no, that's good. <laughs> that was a good one. That's good. No, uh, but it, if uh, if this were a visual and audio experience instead of a podcast, we would definitely have a cardboard cutout of Derek Hale that would just be in the background while we're talking. I would love that. You know, there's time. there'd be like a close up, but then when it goes back to a medium shot, there's just we could Suddenly keep Derek. shifting it between us all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Suddenly Derek gets the, the sitcom spinoff that I wanted. Right. To see him doing like his grocery shopping. Also all, like, called What stuff. the Hail. What the Hail. Nice. <laughs> I like that. What the Hail. I would love to see Derek shop for groceries. <laughs> I just, we do just have examining a, a squash. He's like, not ripe. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a Toyota commercial where his check engine light comes on. He freaks out and has to take it to get checked up. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. But yeah, no, this, I think this was a great second episode to the series. You know, it just, it does a really good job of continuing the story and the mysteries set up in the pilot, but also, you know, we get some resolution, like we know who the woman is now, but then also that spins out to, oh, well, she was Derek's sister and what's going on. And also, I mean, Jackson's one step closer to knowing that Scott's up to something, that something is clearly going on with him. And um, yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens in the next episode to know how these storylines continue to resolve themselves. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Second Chance at First Line. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler free for all the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. Remember the hunters. Her dad is one of them. Her dad? Shot me. Allison's father. With a crossbow. Allison's Yes, father. her father! Now's the time that we're going to talk to costume designer and total badass, Barbara Vasquez. One of my favorite people. Hi. Hey, Hi. Barbara. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Wonderful. Oh my God, it's so wonderful to see you. Good to see you too. It's been a long time. I know, it has been a long time. I'm trying to connect my... Can I curse? Of course. Yes. Okay. I'm just like, Will knows that like, there's no censor here. So like, I always need to know ahead of time. No, no, no. We're good. I need to get the disclaimer from MTV. (laughs) (laughs) We've got the bleep button ready to go. So (laughs) it's totally fine. What show are you on? Where were you, where were you out of town filming? I was in Atlanta doing um, a show, a new show for a BET uh, called The Miss Pat Show, a three camera sitcom. Nice. So Nadia and I were just there. We just got back about a month ago. Nice. Very nice. Really dope indie about drag queens called God Save the Queen. So I'm excited for that. I love that title. That's fantastic. (laughs) I'm always down for a good pun title. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we are very happy that we're able to connect and talk about Teen Wolf, this wonderful show that kind of put us all together. What else would we talk about? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. So there's really nothing else. But I just don't understand. I mean, I've said this so many times on so many platforms. And Will, you, I know that you agree with me. Like, I don't know why we're not still doing it. You're 100% correct. Uh, just because, like, we were the only thing that MTV had at the time that was, like, really worth a damn. 
you know, because nothing else could last. <laughs> nothing for whatever reason, nothing else lasted beyond like a season or two. They had potential in Scream, but it it should have been an anthology show from the beginning. So each season is a new story, but they're like, no, let's keep it going. And then by the end of season two, they're like, oh, we don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so I mean, with with us, it was just like when we moved from Atlanta to LA, it was just like the momentum was crazy. And I just yeah. felt like it, it it blew up so quickly. I think Absolutely. we all knew we had something that was really, really dope, but I don't think we realized how big it was at the time. Well, I think a lot of that had to do with just because we had no time and no money and no nothing. And it was just like, well, we still who have to make... Telling? What's that? <laughs> I said, who are you telling? No time and no money. That that should have been our crew shirts. Oh, yeah. No time, <laughs> no money. So, yeah. But I, I feel like when you're working under those conditions... You just don't have time to think about like we're super popular or we're this or that. And it's like, oh, people yeah. like us. It's just like we have too much work to do. You know, it's there's like, no time. Power number 18. Let's just get through this. Exactly. <laughs> it's like we all want to go home and it's we're in Griffith Park at 5 a.m. We need to get out of here. So all of us leaving to everybody beeping, trying to wake each other up on the drive home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember pretty dangerous sometimes, but we all made we all made it. And sometimes, sometimes Joe would let us have hotels if we needed one. Well, that was, I mean, maybe twice. And how many seasons did twice, we do? Like twice out of six seasons. But, um, <laughs> you know, so it's fine. It's fine. Totally. We all, we all made it out of there. We all, we all, we all made it out of that battle. Awesome. All right. Well, let's, let's, we got questions that we, we desperately need answers to. Oh my God. We do. I don't remember about a specific episode. Go ahead. Let's go. <laughs> That's not a problem. We're good. We're good. Yeah. All right. Kate, you want to jump us in? Yeah. So through the course of the show, did the actors ever offer input on their characters' clothes? What kind of who? What what kind of answer do we want? Do we want the PC answer? Or do you want the real? I want the real answer. The real answer. <laughs> we whatever um, you give us is gold. So I mean, we so want truth. It was different. It's different for everybody. So Posey and Dylan, when they were younger, could give a shit. Like they were just like. <laughs> I mean, it really just didn't matter. They would put anything on. Crystal, who played Allison, she and I had such a tight bond with creating. Allison, I felt like together, like it was super collaborative and she had a lot of ideas, but they made sense. It wasn't sometimes, you know, you run into situations with actors where they want to wear something because in their real life, that's what they would wear or because they think it looks cute. And it has nothing to do with the character. And what was great with Crystal is it was very character driven. Holland, a ton of input, a ton. <laughs> but like in the in the best in the best way. And I think we did something that I thought was pretty and feminine with Lydia that, that we didn't have a ton of on the show. So I, I thought she was like a nice contrast from all of my many, many hoodies and t-shirts. <laughs> but and Hecklin, Hecklin had a lot. He's also so character driven and like we talked a lot. He's like, Barbara, how many, <laughs> how many more like black t-shirts can I be in? And I'm like, I don't know, buddy. This is where we live. I'm sorry. Jeff Davis, who, I mean, if you know me for five minutes, you know, I prayed to the altar of Jeff Davis. I live and breathe for that man and um, would work for free for him. And shit, it feels like I have before. <laughs> but he was the way that he developed these characters and, and created them, it was so fun to be able to 
when I would feel stuck, I could go to Jeff and we would go, oh, well, this is the backstory and like just kind of feed off of his energy and his idea of what the character was. So he, I think, had the most, I mean, I have photos of him distressing the Skinwalker's costumes before they went to camera, like on the back of my truck. Do you remember? I remember this. Yeah, I I remember that. Because I was like, you have to stop touching the like he can't <laughs> and he would be like well and he loved it though so he would like get in and want to age shit which is great because if it's ruined he's the boss no one's gonna say shit to him so very true it worked out it worked out well everybody collaborated on this show this this really was in the 21 years i've done this this really was the most collaborative process and it's also my favorite show that i've ever worked on which is no secret <laughs> but yeah the actors had input i mean when tyler and dylan started getting a little older not so much Dylan, Tyler, we were kind of pushing Scott into a different role. And it was the first time I saw Tyler kind of get interested in like, he was like, no, I think he should have this on and and really great decisions. And I think did well for the character. So it was nice to see him go from like, I don't give a shit Barb to like, no, I want to wear this jacket. That's fantastic. But yeah, the it, it was just nice to see when, when he, when, he being Tyler got involved, but everybody, Malia was the most fun for me because I felt like she was kind of out of the box and I could go a little bit where like sometimes Shelly and I would be in the fitting room and be like, does this work or is it horrible? <laughs> or is it so bad that it's good? And every time it was just a good, so that was really fun. And she was involved only to, she was the only one that would say to me like, whatever you want, whatever you want. And when I would say like, is this crazy? She'd be like, okay, let's try it. Like she was, she was so great with that and just fearless, which is hard with women in film, I think, to really trust the person, you know, like I'm in charge of what you look like on camera. So there has to be a lot of trust there as well. So like, if you see someone that looked like shit, you should know that like, maybe we didn't have a good relationship. (laughs) Oh no. I'm absolutely kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say I'm such a huge fan of yours and they're still to this day I'll like you know go on Poshmark every so often and do like a search for like Teen Wolf clothing because there's still a few pieces that I want to get <gasps> and right now I'm actually wearing the Allison's Free People dress. Um, that was the one that I did in the woods right with the green I think it had a green star jacket over it. Uh, I remember her coming down the staircase during an end credits scene with it. I can't remember what else was going on with it but yeah there's just so many pieces from the show that I've actually bought because I I just love the style so much. Thank you. That's that's huge. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Like that that means more to me than anything. That's oh. that's so huge. Thank you so much because it really was a labor of love. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, just oh, all the clothing just so amazing. Uh, there was the one piece, the um, Lydia's floral dress that she has whenever she goes into blue? like styles. Uh, it this was red. This one is like it was like tan. When she goes into like Styles's head, it's like kind of like a oh, tapestry okay, sort of like piece. It's a light tan, and she has like a, a pale blue like periwinkle floral motif, I think, with a thin belt. Is that it? Yeah. That one, I believe. That one's insane. It'll, people will still list it for like $500 if they come across it. Are you serious? Yeah, we were yeah. we were talking about the other day that on Poshmark, sometimes if someone realizes that a dress or something was on Teen Wolf, they'll raise the price. Because they'll be like, it's like it, it's like worth more because you've seen oh, it wow. on these characters yeah. on Teen Wolf still oh, to this day. That. Yeah. How long have we been off the air? It's like four years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, four so crazy i think that's amazing well her blue this blue dress that i did for her i bought it from h&m but then i kind of took it apart and we added a sleeve and all this other shit and everyone was like where did you i'm like you can't get it we made it <laughs> oh yeah there's definitely a few pieces i remember of- that 
I remember yeah. that exact dress because it's, it looks so good. And then you try to find it and it just, it doesn't exist. It's unique to Tina. And with Zoe Collins and I both like, look, ladies, we all know we don't all love to have our arms out all the time. And we were both kind of like, I love the dress, but what do we do? And so that's when we were like, oh, let's get another dress. We'll add a sleeve. We'll change the hem a little bit and make it a little sexy up top. And it was great. And the color on her was absolutely beautiful. It's a great piece. But that was just, that was like a $30 H&M dress. But everybody's yeah, stuff was altered. Awesome. All Posey's, every single t-shirt that child put on his body was was altered. We took the sleeves up half an inch, made them tighter. Everything was taken, <laughs> was taken in. <laughs> he was snatched to death, honey. Snatched. <laughs> it's fascinating to hear stuff like that, just because I feel like, I know when I watch some, even though having worked in television, even when I watch a show, I'm just like, sometimes you're just like, you don't really think about the clothes because because the yeah. characters, it's just supposed to be something, not, not just supposed to be something they're wearing, but. It, but it, it is, you're right. Right, but the characters haven't thought about it. They're just like, this is what I'm wearing today. But then yeah. when you, you know, we speak to, we speak to you and it's like, oh, well, that's not a real dress. Like we, we found all these pieces and made yeah. something out of it. So it's just, it's so interesting to realize that, it's not always just off the rack stuff or it's just like, yeah. there's so much work that actually goes into something that looks so simple or innocuous. That's like, no, no, there's a lot of work has actually gone into this to make it look as if it was Nobody just, just pulled out of a closet. Exactly. I, right. I love you for saying that. And also I really hope I want you to send Joe Janier this interview. Okay. And let's <laughs> watch that because I, I sometimes producers, I think have no idea what we do and we'll say dumb shit. Like, just put a t-shirt on him. Ah, well, if I would have thought of that. <laughs> and then it's, was he wearing that color t-shirt in the scene before? And what do we have him in after? And do I have to double it? Will it get blood on it? Is this going to be dirty? How many of these do I need to have? Like, it's such a bigger... So thank you for even acknowledging that, Rome. No, it's wonderful. I, I, I know how Joe can be. So it's, it's just like, it's fine. It's fine. A white a white Hanes t-shirt oh, from Target. Just do it. Just put it on him. <laughs> Excellent. What was your favorite outfit for any character in the first season? In the first season? Yeah. I could tell you what it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> that works too. <laughs> Equally good. I could tell you, there were some really good ones in the first. There's a scene in Macy's. I think it was like two in the morning. We were shooting in Macy's. And Holland's costume in that scene, I liked. What I hated from season one was when Lydia gets bit by Peter Hale. That dress and I just want to like be on record and say this I did not choose that dress that did not come from I in no fitting were me and Holland like this cupcake dress that's the winner like we were not we were sponsored by a company at the time and they had sent us both her and they sent us a couple dresses and those were the least offensive oh no oh, <laughs> so, but like thank god like Holland looked adorable it was just in my head where I'm like I hate this dress like I would never have Lydia in this dress in this color especially in that scene and she's so beautiful and her skin color and her hair color like she should have been in a beautiful jewel, jewel tone dress and really just popped on the field and instead we were like no no champagne <laughs> so again not my choice but there's there's so many good ones in the first for me but my all-time favorite is Crystal Reed in the woods and I can't remember what season it is I have a huge photo of it though that used to hang by my desk and she's in this beautiful white short flowy like peasant dress with a structured military green g-star jacket on and I think I had like a high, a high flat knee boot on her when she came out 
everybody would not, she can't wear white. Like they wanted me to change her. It was a whole thing. And I'm like, it's movie magic. She's dating a werewolf. Like it's not conceivable <laughs> that she could have white on in the woods. She didn't know she was coming here. So finally they let us do it. And it was such a huge, like Russell Mulcahy shot it. And it was so beautifully lit. It was so beautifully shot, like the fluidity of the dress. And I just remember standing behind the monitor, like, <laughs> you want to be like Barb that looks good <laughs> and I mean they didn't but <laughs> Jeff after the fact in post was like it's a f- beautiful shot and like that's all I need is one compliment a year from Jeff Davis and I can tell you <laughs> was the jacket like sort of military look yes okay I actually remember so Calissa and I worked a couple of Teen Wolf conventions uh-huh. and I remember one of the panels someone had asked Crystal Reed about her favorite outfit of Allison's. And I'm pretty sure that's the one that she said. Because that was us together. Yeah, she said that she felt like, you know, like the the flowy dress, but within the military style. Yeah, it's like... It it felt like that outfit represented Allison's um, duality. Oh, see, you get it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I I remember her talking about that, yeah. And I wanted it so bad knowing that I could only get one right and they were like do you have multiples and i was like yeah 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 yeah. we have however many you need we got it we had one jacket and we low-key went and my seamstress maria vaughn who is like a a goddess with thread reconstructed this exact jacket and made us two more so she saved our ass and copied the jacket and was able to make it and nobody knew until now (laughs) secrets revealed I do remember Maria, you know, because you would go, you know, you'd walk into like you're going to stage and you'd walk to the wardrobe department and the big room with all the racks of clothes and the racks along the walls and all that. And Maria would be speed working. Speed work. She had a huge. I remember we started with one like small, like eight foot cutting table. And I think by season four, it was just like 12 feet here. And, <laughs> like it just encompassed her because. Yeah. We were constantly at that point making so many custom pieces that that costume shop just flowed constant. They were like, why do you need a seamstress? And I'm like, well, watch the show. Like this, this didn't come from Party City, baby. (laughs) 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 I mean, when when we did the walkers on the fly and they said to me, um, we don't need doubles. You know, when they say that shit, just go get three of everything. (laughs) As soon as they said that in the meeting, I remember texting Danny Flores, my costume supervisor. And I was like, tell the ladies, get ready. Like we we need to make two or three more of these. And they were so specific. Same with the Duroc was 150 pieces of leather of different leather stitched together. And when they said they wanted a double, I was like, of what? Like, it'd be easier to just write a new scene at this point yeah then for me to create this again but we dyed all of that gauze like that was such a specific costume and literally on the set four in the morning someone looks at me and is like i think we're gonna need two of these and i just remember being like we can't can't. i don't have we don't have to i can't i don't even know where i got it was like scraps of leather that maria and i had found that we really liked that felt organic to put together and and could give a really cool earthy vibe. And then they'll, and then, you know, here comes our producer and goes, not a big deal. Just, just make another one and buy tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and we were always ready. 
I I do not remember a single time ever when it was like we have to hold the role or do something because of wardrobe. Well, it was I I I mean we were cried in the office like at the end of the day it would just be like (laughs) I want to go home. But y'all did such amazing work. It's all we spoke we've spoken with Russell uh, about the pilot and it and again kind of flowing out of our talk about how just the budget was basically nothing but all the money we did have is on screen like every single cent is there in every single frame and especially when it comes to the costumes like in the first season the costumes are like simple like they're just normal people clothes but then it's like as the seasons go on it's like the world gets so much bigger and then you know by the end of it we've got dread doctors and then we're in the americas in the 1790s when you get the maid of jevenon's a perfectly beautiful dress and her cloak and everything and it's like well the money didn't change it's like the budget stays the same but it gets so much bigger every season and which is a testament to y'all feature film every week like Mm -hmm. we and like you said with no money with no sleeve and when people say like oh it's such bullshit that you guys say like you're like a fan every one of us still talks like we all see each other we all i was just with carly makeup the other night when i was texting you like we all see each other constantly i spoke to hecklin last week he facetimed me like everybody still keeps in touch and it i mean my kid grew up on that show Every, all of these people helped raise my daughter like well you know shit how many times did you have to take her to craft nadia no it, it's fantastic because i've been looking through as we've been pulling the podcast together and we've just launched our instagram and so we're pulling pictures uh, together like i was going through my my giant folder on dropbox and it's like she ages like six years and all these pictures, like she's so tiny. And like yeah. the very first pictures I have, and like there's like a great picture of her sitting in, in Jeff's chair in the writer's room. And then there's like a picture of her like on the final day or something like that. And it's like- She's like my height. Yeah, she's Just grown up. And it's, it's and the same thing with Joe and Karen's kids, with Rosie oh and Sivan, where it's just like, oh, look at these little, little children from season, you know, from the very first season or whatever. And then by the end of it, it's like, they're practically I mean, adults. They really, they're going to college yeah. or something, you know? <laughs> up on this and everybody took care of it. I mean all, all of the actors like I have a picture of Nadia in base camp she must have finished school early mm-hmm. and it's Max and Charlie Carver Holland Nadia in a makeshift bathing suit I guess that Charlie had went to Toys R Us and got a blow-up pool of water guns and they had filled up the pool in between because they had like four hours and Holland and Max and Charlie were in the baby pool with her. Oh, <laughs> got everything else together, <laughs> like got her trailer ready. But every, it was like everybody watched her. Holland used to take her to her trailer if it was like three in the morning and we were still on set. She'd go with Holland. Like I'm, I'm so grateful on so many levels for this for this show and all the opportunities it's created and allowing me to still be a mom and not have someone else raise my kid like that. That was truly a luxury and to have all these amazing people help <laughs> like that really was my village <laughs> still is it's fantastic i mean it was definitely a real family yeah you know, working yeah, on that show sure. and everyone's there and it was just it was absolutely amazing just absolutely amazing <laughs> i say that now but then like i'm flashing in my head to like 16 degrees freezing shooting for 15 hours me yelling at Russell. Russell thinks that I do the makeup, like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, that was for almost a year that he would look at me on set and he'd go, yeah, they fix my makeup, yeah? And I'm like, who the f- is he talking to? And finally one day I'm like, Russell, do you know I'm the costume designer? And he was like, yeah? 
<laughs> but a year, I mean, Jeff and I used to laugh. Jeff would be like, get your brushes. Like, it was going to be a good Russell was incredible. Tim Andrews, we had such great directors. Dave Daniel, our DP. Like, it was just, it was a lot of talent on that set. And I'm going to say it again, for very little money. <laughs> Practically no money. No money at all. But since, you know, we didn't have a lot of money on the show, but you did such great work with all the with all the amazing costumes is there one character who is your favorite costume wise from the entire show i mean it's malia 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 for sure and every time i look back it's it it it, her costumes age well for me Mm -hmm. like when you watch a movie like um super bad or book smart even with knocked up kind of you can you can't really tell what time period it is and sometimes I think that helps with like what I'm saying, it ages well, where you're like, oh, this was in the 90s. This was the, unless it's period specific. I like the idea of that working kind of flow through time and you're not bogged down by like, oh my God, look at these mom jeans. They're like, what the best? You know what I mean, like the bell bottoms are those terrible jeans from the 2000s that go below your belly button. Not a good fit for anyone. <laughs> so I think Malia for sure. And Creatures, I think, was either the Rock or the Dread Doctors. They were outrageous. I mean, our effects makeup department was so f- incredible. I mean, Chris Gallagher, Corin, that that team was just like, I would come in with my little costume at the end, and it would be like, I did nothing compared to what these boys pulled out. I mean, they were, it's like the talent in that trailer was f- incredible. And in the time amount of time that they did it, and, and the way that, they would bring me in to collaborate with them. It was it was just so, so nice. So nice. Well, it feels like your two departments complemented each other because you've got this amazing sure. costume, but then the, the prosthetics oh. that go on. But either one is cool, but when you put them together, it's ridiculous it's how awesome. amazing it is. And Jeff kept adding in Jeff Davis fashion how I, it's, you know, I'm always fascinated how his beautiful mind works. And there are times where I'm like, I wish you would share it with us on the outside so I could get there with you. <laughs> but he kept saying to like, he, something was missing for him. And he does this thing because he does a walk when he's, when the wheels are turning. And I remember him in my office and he started with the f- walk and I was like, here we go. Like he's <laughs> like, so I, I, he, something. And he was right though. Every touch he's put on something. I'm like, oh, I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> no, Jeff. It's very smart and always has oh. great, I'm not sure what the word is, but like you, you're right about the walk because I saw it plenty of times in the writer's room. Oh my God. And, but it's like, it was, it was always landed on something amazing. Yeah. Like, that he great. like would have an idea that something. something. Yeah. So. What was it like? You, you've talked a little bit about Malia and developing her character and how you collaborated with different people, but what, what was it like when a new character is introduced and you're trying to find their particular look jeff davis it is it is constant i mean of me driving him insane with just like is this right is this what you want because really with when you work with somebody like jeff this is his vision my my job is to pull what's in his head out and put it on screen for him so being able to communicate with him as closely as we did i think helped but every time we were constantly introducing new characters so you, as soon as you start to get comfortable, it would be someone new. Like when we brought Arden in, you know, that was, and where are we going with Kira? What happens with her storyline? Who is she? So it's really just to Jeff and to the writers where it's just, you know, where I'm stuck. And I'm like, well, what do her parents do for a living? Which is a thing for someone like Scott McCall, like the way he dresses. He has a 
single mom who's a nurse. He would never be in like Jackson where he's wearing Armani and whatever else. But when it's someone, but we know that when it's someone new, it's constant communication with the writers and with Jeff and just who is this person. And it's a lot of playing. And that I'm grateful for is the numerous fittings where just because you don't know, you can have an, an idea in your head and it could be great in your head. And then you put it on someone's body and we're like, nope, not at all what we were thinking. It doesn't it doesn't fit right. It doesn't feel right for the character. So it's all trial and error. And having the time to do it is helpful, which we didn't always have. But we, I mean, they, they found time for me. Our first AD, JD, who would always, I mean, begrudgingly, but like always. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it's communication and creating this person together. And with, with the actor too, you know, some actors don't give a shit and they're just like, give me the page and, I'll, and we'll go. And some are like, no, I feel like this is who he or she is. I feel like this is where they're coming from. This is the direction I want to take them. And you have to take that into account as well, even if you disagree. <laughs> I love that you took into consideration like Scott uh, being the child of a single mother, because there's so many shows where I'll watch, there'll be teenagers and they're dressed in like $500 sweaters. I'm like, that's Girl, I can't. crazy. <laughs> or also when you see, like when you have a, a, a show that's a series or an episodic and they never repeat clothes, it's odd to me and it's unrealistic. Right. So like, I like to repeat like key pieces and it depends on the character. Like Jackson's character, we could have seen him in something new every time because we already knew that his family had money like that. It was constantly implied. We saw it. But with stuff like that, it is like, you don't want to see them in like a f- wild fox sweatshirt and like, you know, your mom got two jobs. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where'd you get that from? <laughs> well, no, I, I think that that's such an important thing, but that's the difference too, that I think people get confused with fashion and film and being a stylist and a costume designer are two very different things. And being a costume designer is not about fashion. It's about creating a character and a look for this character. And that when that actor puts those clothes on, they feel like that character. And when the audience sees them, you don't even think about what they're wearing because it feels like who you're watching on the screen. So I used to style as well, which I love really expensive, pretty things, (laughs) which is great. But this for me is so because there's so much more involved in it i i feel like and getting to be involved in creating who this person is that's going to go on on screen i think is kind of dope yeah that that makes a lot of sense that as a stylist the question is like is it beautiful will it look good on but as a costume designer there are a lot more questions to consider who is this person would they wear this would they wear this in this situation right could they afford it yeah convincing the actor too who's like I don't want to wear it. I don't want to do it. And you're like, but it's the character. And they're like, no. Like they <laughs> And so that's when you have to go to one of the grown-ups, like Joe Junior or Jeff Davis and be like, I need some help. <laughs> and then they have to come in and be like, they always say, I'll just tell them to wear it. And then they leave the room and the actor's like, I can wear whatever I want, they said. And I'm like, of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> They're supposed to be bad parents. Yeah, I, I usually go for the backup, but they always come out. It's, it's the worst. But... Like Holland always wears heels, right? Well, you know what I'm going to say because this has been going on for years. Holland will throw me under the bus and be like, Barbara always wanted me in heels. That is not the truth. (laughs) (laughs) It ended up evolving to that was her character, but she felt more comfortable in heels. And Honey could walk in them, could run in them. like. And I remember thinking, because the directors would say to me, like, she's running down the hallway. And I'd be like, she be all right? Like, she, <laughs> she's fine. She wanted to wear them. But it also made sense in this in the same realm, because she's not dressed to go on, like, these crazy 
chases and finding werewolves. Like she just went to school and she was that girl at school. So it, you know, it made sense, but it was a constant thing, like with interviews and stuff where she'd be like, yeah, and she always wants me to heal. And I would just laugh and be like, Holland. (laughs) (laughs) But she was fun to dress too, because she knows what looks good on her body and is very specific, but in the best way. And I think the more comfortable we got together, and you, I think you can see it once she really trusted me, where we played with color a little more. So we put pants on her. I know I couldn't believe. Oh my god! Twice, <laughs> like she came. I remember she came to set, and Joe was like, "Is she dressed?" And I was like, "Yeah, costume. She wearing pants." Like we were so excited. But she, the the dog sweater. I don't know if you guys remember that. Oh yes. That's like one of my favorites. That was one of my favorite looks and she loved it. And then we fought because we wanted to wear it for such a long scene because we loved the look so much. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, a fan favorite. I've seen that uh, a lot. Oh, I love that one. That's my, there we go. That's my favorite then. That one in the crystal read. <laughs> uh, so I noticed that in the first season of Teen Wolf, it started off with Styles wearing a lot of like graphic tees with blazers over them. And then, it, it, you know, of course it, evolved down the line with styles being mostly dressed in hoodies and flannels was there anything in particular that brought about that change so i didn't start as the original designer and there was a change that made that was made in season one i think episode two and i stepped into that position i was there but i stepped into that position and then i was the one who made the decision to it didn't make sense for me with his character and i was like it's early enough no one will notice (laughs) Well, everyone noticed, but it just made sense to me. And I needed to keep him young. And like, I didn't styles to me and it's a single dad and like, there's no mom there. And he like, I don't, he wouldn't have a, to me, he's not like throwing a blazer on. He's like, is this clean? No, but I can still wear it one more time. Like that's, <laughs> that's what styles was for me. So I was like, you know, it's early enough. Let me just make the change and push him into this very boy next door all-American teenager, and that's what he was. So that's what happened with that. That definitely makes a lot more sense. Well, the flannel became that. iconic for oh, that yeah. character. Definitely. So What? The the flannel became iconic for that uh, character. So you the purple hoodie? He was obsessed In, with the I hoodie. remember the red one. Remember the red one? Which I think one? everyone remembers. Wait, what, what, wasn't the purple hoodie the one, Kalissa, that he wore in the first episode and you were saying that you had read that was him, but he's like dancing oh, in the it. dancing one, yeah. Right. That one, That's yes. his, his personal. So Dylan O'Brien, when I don't know about now, when he was younger, was never cold. Like we could be shooting outside, it's freezing. And Dylan would have that purple hoodie on. And the mom and me would be like, put your jacket on. Would <laughs> never. Posey would be like, "Give me the jacket." But Dylan <laughs> would be like in his hoodie dancing around, and he loved it. And then it became in between takes where my team would call and be like, "He wants to wear the hoodie," and I'm like, "Let him wear it. Like I don't care. So like I wear something Styles would wear anyway." But it became we'd seen it so many times, and then they would do behind the scenes stuff, and I'm like, "Take that hoodie off. It looks like you don't own anything else." <laughs> <laughs> So when he got to just start wearing it on the show, I think like he was happy. I was happy. I didn't have to pick out a different hoodie. So I think it worked for everybody. <laughs> but that was his personal hoodie that he was like obsessed with. If you go and look up behind the scenes stuff, he's always got that hoodie on. And now that you say that, I do recall like seeing a lot of like behind the scenes. Like, yeah. Always. <laughs> oh, or he'd be like, Barb, Barb. and I'm like, it's on your chair. Just go put it on. <laughs> But his flannels, yeah, he was he was flannels. Like every time I put Scott in a flannel, one of the producers would be like, that's Styles' thing. I'm like, you know, they can both wear a flannel, right? 
Like, look how many people in this room are all wearing denim and no one said anything. Don't look around and let me put two people in flannel in the same scene. I mean, one time I did dress everybody in green by accident. In the world of television, people can't wear the same thing or the universe would just explode or something like that. So it's, it's, so, it's so weird to me. It's you used so to color code on Veronica Mars the first season of that. That's just what I was thinking about was that, yeah, there were two characters that I guess they were worried. Were they worried that people wouldn't be able to tell them apart? I guess. <laughs> but yeah, two male characters. One had to be in like orange, yellow, warm colors. The other one was in cool colors, blues and greens. Let me tell you, as a designer, we hate that note because you just feel stuck and limited. And at a certain point, you're just like, how many more of these orange shirts can I put on him? Right. <laughs> It does feel like it would be limiting instead of just what's what's the best for the character. And exactly. We've talked about a little bit already and, and what's kind of been a recurring theme that we've, we've spoken about in other interviews is the lack of money. Was there ever a costume idea or a, a piece for a costume that you just couldn't do but wished you had because of budgetary reasons? Um. No, I always get what I want, though. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the good answer. Um, I mean, we were really fortunate with, um, I had some good connections. And what saved our budget a lot, where I could I could put money elsewhere, was Nike. That gave me so much free shit um, for the sh- I mean, it was amazing. It's, it really saved us. Levi's gave us tons of product placement. So stuff like that helped that if I wanted something we could still get it except for when we were designing costumes and then it becomes they don't want to pay the man hours and I can't just have myself in one seamstress working 24 hours a day seven days a week to have this costume done in three days (laughs) so that was the only thing was the manpower where they would fight and in the end they'd have to give in anyway they'd be like oh shit they do need help but (laughs) only for one day (laughs) so no it wasn't anything big but it was just stuff like that with manpower that budget wise, they would just, we would get shut down. Gotcha. Did you have a deal with free people or is that just a personal preference? Cause I know there was a lot of free people clothing on the show. So Crystal Reed personally loves free people and then mm-hmm. it looks great on her. So we used a lot. They gave us, I don't think they ever did product placement with us, but I do believe we got discounts cause they're fairly expensive, especially mm-hmm. when I have to, you know, when I need three of something. So I was careful with that too, with her where it, if it was a key piece, I would have to be careful because I'm, I'm worried that we wouldn't have the money to doll it. <laughs> that kind of stuff is super helpful when you have such a limited budget and with a huge cast. Yeah. It was a really big cast and a lot of changes. Like I remember being like, can't you guys write this shit all in one day? Like why does it have to take place in five days? <laughs> and I remember they, those talks. Oh my God. I'm like, if you people write one more <laughs> script. <laughs> That takes place over two weeks <laughs> and everybody's changing. And then, it, I mean, we had such a great set crew. My, my team was, still is, they, we all still work together, is out of this world and an absolute pleasure to work. Like all I do is pick those clothes out. They are responsible for how that looks on camera and they make me proud every single time. So I'm super grateful because we all know, like, I'll go and f*** it up, but they come in and make me look like a rock star. (laughs) (laughs) So what was the process like finding the outfits for a given episode? So you you were talking about reading the script and thinking to yourself, why does this take place over two weeks? So then what what was the next step? How did that process work? It's 
breaking down the script to see how many days it takes place in and then all the action that's going to happen. Are they going to spill something? Does someone fall? Are they running? Are they going to be outside? Will they need a jacket? Is someone going to have a purse? Like all of these little things start to come into play. And then we schedule a fitting. Usually every episode we, we have a fitting and just go through their breakdown of how many change, like Scott easily would have eight changes. So he'd come in and we would do his fitting and then go, okay, do we need multiples of this? Can I still get it? That's sometimes how we decided was, do I have five of these shirts? Yes, that's what he's wearing. (laughs) (laughs) It would be him, a stunt double, a wolf double, blood. So you would really need, but that's that's kind of how it goes. It's just reading the script and seeing what the action is and and what the scene is and what's happening for the character in that moment. Like, is there going to be lingerie? Are they having a makeout scene and they're going to take someone's top off? And then it becomes a conversation of, can we see him undo her? These are actual conversations we've had. Can we see her bare back if he takes her bra off? Yes, but we can't see side boob. Can we? <laughs> this, this is shit that we talk about at two in the morning. And I'm like, my job is so stupid. Like, <laughs> I, so it's just stuff like that. And then it's, is she wearing her bra? Oh no, we have to give her a bra because if we have to reshoot this, I have to make sure that we have it and we can match the bra. So all of those things happen the day that script comes out. It's locked in the office, read it, go to the writer's room, cry or yell, maybe both. (laughs) And then (laughs) go back to my office, regroup and start setting the episode. And then I, I like to do it I photograph them in each costume, make these boards that so you'll know who's in what scene together. You'll see them at a glance. And then I take this said board to whoever's directing the episode, make them sign it, go to Jeff Davis, make him sign it, go to Joe Janier, make him sign it. And then go to set and someone's like, I've never seen these clothes before. (laughs) (laughs) All my signatures, but it's nice to have it at at a glance. And I keep those up for every... I don't know if you guys remember in the office, like I had them up for every episode because if not, I would just keep dressing them in the same shit. So it's to remind me of like, oh, he just, he just wore this jacket in this episode. I can space it out. Our styles just had this t-shirt. So that's fittings, alterations, final fit, shoot. Sometimes all on the same day. (laughs) Never enough time. Always. It doesn't matter how much time we have. It's never enough. And someone's always yelling. Like, we need to set. And I'm like, why? We're, you're calling me to set. And one of the grips has a ladder in front of the camera. Like, you're obviously not ready. <laughs> but now I am. So let's go. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, I'm here now. So right, get that ladder out of the way. <laughs> Barbara, how did... I know we've talked about this just a little bit, but how did the looks of the characters change over time? I know, you know, we talked about Scott and Styles, sort of like season one kind of moving forward. But how did the other characters evolve over time? You didn't see, you know what? We didn't do much, mainly with Scott. I feel like we really saw his evolution. Everybody else, I kept fairly similar because I wanted it to feel like home. Like, you could always come back to it and it's like all this crazy chaos and all this stuff that's changing. Like you look at them and you just know like, oh, okay, like that's Lydia. Like you, you see her and her little fit and flare skirt and her little pump, you know, like that's, there was something to me that was comforting about that. And seeing Scott coming into his own and really moving on and moving forward, I wanted to really spotlight that with his, where we went from little boy, like t-shirts and Kind of, and also, I never loved him pressed. Like you, if you'll notice, like he's a little wrinkly sometimes. That was at 100% a design decision because he needed to feel real life to me and not pristine. Mm-hmm. 
But as he matures, you see him in these more structured fitted jeans with like a great demi boot and ja like his jackets are different, more button downs. So just keeping him, elevating him a little bit to really show him coming into his own. But like whenever you come home to Beacon Health, like the rest of our team is still like everybody's pretty much the same intact, depending on who we kill, but they always come back. <laughs> That's true. Very true. Uh, I love that answer. <laughs> so I know you mentioned that uh, you guys did a lot of like customizing clothes. Was there any outfits or how often did you were you able to just put something on off the rack without having to alter it? Uh, styles always. He was the only one that would, I mean, there were times that like, I'd be like, Dylan, the tag is still on. <laughs> <laughs> But he was the only one, everybody else was in some way nipped and tucked, like somewhere, <laughs> whether it had been a t-shirt or a hem or some, some little detail, except for Dylan O'Brien. And like, look, I'm just happy that Dylan would put clothes on. Like, you have to remember, they were like 18, 19 years old. They were, it was like herding kittens. They were all over <laughs> And they were like, like their excitement and their energy was infectious to be around. Like, even if you were having a shitty day, you can when you're like sandwiched <laughs> between Tyler and Dylan. And I'm like, <laughs> like, it's like not an exaggeration. Like this is some real shit that happens around there. <laughs> like you just, no matter what was going on, they just always made it fun. But yeah, Dylan was just, and constantly I'd be like, Dylan, take that jacket with you. And he, or like get off the floor. <laughs> like my and were rolling down a hill in Atlanta. I'm like, what are you two doing in your wardrobe? And they were like, bro, we were just rolling down this hill. And I'm like, right, please stop. <laughs> and I was like, go put your clothes on and roll down the hill. <laughs> like, I just remember this. Colton Haynes, we we used to laugh about this all the time. I, I used to say to him, because my people would come in every night and be like, every day we set Colton with socks and underwear. They're never there at the end of the night. And he never brings them back. And I'm like, that's weird. And then like someone else brought it up, another person on my team. So he and I are having dinner one night and I'm like, bro, what do you do with all the shit I give you? He goes, oh, oh, I come with my own. He's like, I just take it home with me because I don't like to do laundry. So he's <laughs> collecting socks and underwear so that he doesn't have to do laundry. <laughs> but I kept saying, I'm like, where are the teeth? And why doesn't he bring them back? Like maybe he doesn't want us to wash it. Like I mean, he was like, no. It's just so I don't, A, have to buy them. B, I don't have to do laundry. So every day he would just put the socks and underwear in his bag and be like, call it a day. Such <laughs> <laughs> a guy answer. I know, right? Yeah. I was just thinking that. <laughs> the worst. So in the later seasons, Will kind of touched on this a little bit. Teen Wolf kind of expanded and they had scenes that took place in other countries. So how did you go about adapting the costuming to reflect a different geographical setting or, or cultural setting? Research, 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 more research. I'm a stickler for period costumes and being accurate. So that corset is a custom made real corset that took forever to get her into and lace up. There was not a button, there was not, or there was buttons, there was not a snap, there was not a zipper, like everything was ties and authentic to the period. Wow, and wow. we made every single one of those costumes. That's a lie. We made 90% of those costumes. <laughs> <laughs> we did rent undergarments from, I think, Western costume. But that was, I think that was my, and Crystal looks so, so beautiful. amazing. Oh, yeah, my beautiful. God. Someone was I like, she's like, from Beauty and the Beast. I was like, shut up. No, she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
Belle with a bow and arrow, she's going to hunt some monsters. Like <laughs> yeah, if Belle was more Belle's of a like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, No, that one was incredible, just because it was so much fun to do. Look, the everyday stuff is great, but there really is a certain point where you're like, I can't pick out one more t-shirt. Like how, if I... And to make it different every, you know, like I don't want the audience to get bored either looking at them. So when we get stuff like that, I'm like, oh, thank God. It's like a welcome break from t-shirts and hoodies and my poor Tyler Hecklin in his black leather jacket. <laughs> you know, we've been talking a lot about the human characters on the show, but what was the process like for our monsters? Because we have some very wonderful monsters. What was it like finding the look of our monsters? Uh, again, I'm sorry, guys, I wish I had a better answer. It's Jeff. It's these come out of Jeff's head. And he has such a specific, like, he knows exactly what whatever this creature is, what it looks like. And you know, because you'll see him, he does one of these. And then you see the plant and you start. Or if there's, we always have a whiteboard, you'll see yep. him get up and he's looking and then he just starts. There have been many a times when he realized the hard way is like, this isn't, this is a Sharpie. A <laughs> <laughs> couple times, a couple times, yeah. But it's Jeff. I mean, he really has such a vision, which makes it easy for me to do because I'm not like hitting a wall where I'm like, I don't know what they want. I know what I want, but I'm not, I can't, I don't know how to put it together. He'll say something to me, sketch something out. Maybe we'll go back and forth. And then I come back and I'm like, like this? And sometimes he's like, yeah, like that. Most times he's like, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll be back. <laughs> and then he'll come in and it'll be him and I together. Like also bringing in other people. I feel like we did that a lot on TV, in other departments. Like, hey, what do you think about this? Like, is this, is this cool? Or like, what if we did, I think you can never get enough input when it's something creative like that. So there was a lot of that too where you'd have someone, maybe it was props, that was excited about this character and was like, oh, you know, it'd be cool if you guys did this. And I'd be like, oh yeah, that's a great, you know, I didn't, maybe it's something you didn't think of. Right. So that, that was the monsters for me it was mainly Jeff, but then like collaborating with, with everybody, with our whole production. I mean, really like even the people in the office, like everybody, we were all involved. <laughs> no, I remember plenty of times when like cat or somebody would have like ideas for props and it's just like everybody kind of has their board and it's like yeah. you're going from department to department yes. saying like what is this does this is this going to be a problem for you, for you. what does do you think yeah and then yeah, and you're right and then of course you know like you'll like go up after lunch or something and there's somebody like in mary and brian's office are talking with karen it's like what do y'all think about this what do we think yeah it's so true it's so true yeah so true. My favorite though is like when someone would come in and be like, Hey, I love what um whoever like what so-and-so was wearing in that scene. I'm like, because when it comes from ever them at work, we see we see each other all day. Like we see these clothes all day. So when someone comes up and is like, Oh hey, so and so look great today. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the monsters are just it's just that. It's just and I, I used to feel like Jeff was most excited about that, which then like makes you excited. So I'd be like, yeah, we're going to sew, sew this guy's mouth shut. I can't wait. Like, <laughs> shit like that. <laughs> but it's just, it's that it's constant collaborating, constant communication and pulling out what's in his genius brain and trying to bring it to life <laughs> for no money. <laughs> for no money, of course. Minimal yes. time. <laughs> well, so like, uh, the universe, but like you have two and a half hours. <laughs> I know that you talked about how it was difficult if they wanted you to duplicate something like the Drox outfit. Yeah. Were there any costumes that 
you found it particularly difficult to create? Was it just when they asked for duplicates of something you've already made? The Duroc was difficult just because I couldn't figure out what I really wanted. And Jeff was so specific with sketches, photos, um, and pieces of stuff where like, and I get it because that's how I work too. Like if I'm looking at an outfit that I like, it doesn't necessarily mean the whole outfit. It's like, oh, I like the element of this. I like the shoulders on that. I like the way this is cut. And he, he does that. So it was elements of all of this stuff. And we knew it had to be something different, but he wanted her to still be feminine. And it had to come from the earth and it had to be organic. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so that was difficult because it, it, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It was 150 pieces, scrap, leather scraps. So no leather that matched. So us even putting it together, I remember going to ask if we could have a leather machine mm. and Joe, our producer was like, I want you to like basically give him a presentation about why I need this thing. <laughs> and finally I was like, I just need it. Like, I just need a Joe. Are you going to get it for me or not? He was like, yeah, I was going to let you get it, but I wanted to hear like your whole spiel. Like he was <laughs> And we ended up getting it. I remember Maria was very excited just because to put the hardware into leather and some of the leather was thin enough that we could work by hand or with our regular machine, but some of it was this really dense and also like crazy sizes. I didn't want to cut anything. Like I wanted everything to be raw and ripped. And so it was, it was a difficult, and then I wanted to use gauze instead of an actual skirt. And then I decided we needed to dye the gauze and then I couldn't figure out a color. So there was just probably 13 different samples of the same color brown, but like a shade. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know which one I can't make a decision. <laughs> So that, that one was raw and fitting her in it. I mean, on top of hours of prosthetics, putting her in that costume, it's not comfortable. It's not breathable. I then decide she's going to wear a wooden carved shoe with a six inch platform. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, yes. And she put them on and it was great. And then she went from her trailer to set. And now she was like, I hate these shoes. And I was like, bro, me too. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Now these are her shoes. <laughs> but that it was just that was a difficult costume. And it was difficult because the gauze, if it got caught on something, it would rip and I'd have to replace it on the fly or like so that that one was my most difficult. I think anything after that was I mean, by then I was so used to getting the shit kicked out of me by them that it was like, what do you got? Let's go. Um uh, one, it was awesome because I'm trying to think how old and I I still say the kids, how old Tyler and Dylan really were that like how young they were. And so we were in Atlanta and they were staying not far from me. And I would go, Nadia was maybe two. I think my daughter was two. And I would go check on them because it was Hecklin, Posey and Dylan. And Hecklin was not a partier by any means. Like he was gym, scripts, bed like and then the other two clowns were like <laughs> like they were in Atlanta alone living their life that apartment was so disgusting <laughs> I remember one night it was, I don't know where I was like out like an adult somewhere and I get a call from Hecklin and he's like you, you gotta get over here I'm like what's going on he's like we're having a party but like I'm just ready for this to be over. But I get there and it's like a whole party happening. And I lock eyes and Hecklin's just sitting like this. And it's just, <laughs> almost like nothing else is happening. He's just, and looks, and then I see Posey. who's <laughs> like, bro, I just threw up out my bedroom window. And I was like, 
but why not the bathroom? And he was like, I don't know, bro. I was in there and it just happened. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And I just remember cleaning up and Heckman just sitting like, not like, how did I get, mind you, they did not live together again after that. Dylan <laughs> did. And then they moved close. They had them closer to where I was. So I would go check on them. And then I think their moms were coming in town or no girlfriends were coming in. So I'm like, I better get over there because these two idiots had filmed themselves killing a giant cockroach in their apartment <laughs> and, and left the carcass there. And when I asked them why, I was told as a reminder to the other cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like- That's some like Lord of the Flies shit there. <laughs> so ridiculous. So then I'm like, I go in their bathroom for something and I'm like, what is this? And Posey's like, or soap. And I'm like, where's your shampoo? And he's like, it's the soap. I'm like, what are you two in jail? Like, why do you have one bar? <laughs> like, I remember getting like all of their bath products. I went and got flowers for the house, actual food that's not just donor food, because it was nothing but like Ilio's pizza in their freezer, <laughs> like frozen pizzas, pizza bites, like anything pizza adjacent. <laughs> like an array of just chips and shit like that. I'm like, you cannot have a girl come over here. And, and they're like, it's. I think it's fine, Barb. And I'm like, no. And it was Dylan's girlfriend at the time knew. Like when she came in, she was like, oh, Barbara's here. <laughs> and their, mom, like their moms would come in and Posey's mom would call and be like, I know you came over and cleaned up. And I'm like, yeah. She's like, thanks, honey. I'm like, no problem. Because <laughs> if you just left the two of them alone, like it was just... I remember Joe went over there with me one night and Joe was like, what the f*** happens in here? Like nothing was hung up. It was just like shit everywhere. But they were <sighs> so young, so young. Kids. And just, I mean, they were ridiculous. It was so fun to be around and the shit that would come out of their mouths. When I say it now, like I'll, I was with Posey not too long ago and where he was like, bro, I know I never used to say stuff like that. And I'm like, Tyler, I have you on vi- like I have videos. <laughs> <laughs> I have videos. And it's funny that I don't know if he does it. He's like, bro, really? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to love to have like a everybody at my house or like cook or have a theme night. And just having everybody there and like everybody in and out. And it was never like an invitation. Everybody just knew like. I remember like a grip showing up one day and was like that I didn't even really know, but like we were <laughs> together and he was like, I heard everybody was coming over here. Is this cool? And I was like, yeah, like that's, it was just nice. Everybody was always in and out. I remember waking up one morning to Hecklin and my, and my daughter playing with her Barbie dream house. Aww. <laughs> Aww. And I was like, this might be the cutest thing ever. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, playing Barbie is why. And I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, I didn't even know you were here. <laughs> but I mean, there's so many just good. It's just, it's fun. we just had the, it was just fun. It was just fun. And they were fun. It was Dylan and Ty. Dylan is probably one of the funniest people I know. Just his comedic timing. We were doing season one and Dylan and Tyler in the high school, in the hall, the high school with asbestos that we used to shoot in Will. Um, <laughs> they're in the hallway and you guys have interviewed Russell and you know that Russell has a very heavy Australian accent, but also he has like a lot of Russellisms. So like sometimes you're not sure what he's saying. We all just go, oh, okay. So, <laughs> two of them and I'm at the monitor and they're like around talking. And Russell's standing near them. And Posey says something about he's being hot or something like that. And Russell goes, this is why I better wear black in the desert. And everyone's like, what? 
Like, no, but the kids don't know what to, and they're like, they don't know if he made a joke. They don't, they don't, they genuinely don't know what he said. And neither one of them want to be rude. And you see Posey go, um, huh? And he's like, really? The Bedouins is what Bedouins would like he does it. Yeah. And then they were like, yeah, maybe. And he walks away and you hear them. Like, I have my hands on, right? So I can hear them. And they're like, what the fuck? I don't know what he's at. In the middle of the scene, Dylan goes, that's why Bedouins wear black in the desert. It was like he he realized what Russell said and yelled it out in the middle of the scene. <laughs> yeah, like as if it just connected for everyone. <laughs> but Posey was still like, and then he goes, oh, what the f*** is a Bedouin, Dylan? <laughs> but they were like Bill and Ted. I mean, and then they forget that they were mic'd. So you would hear them like cracking each other up, talking and you're, like the, just the ridiculous things that they would talk about. And you'd be like, everyone could hear you. Colton and I would be the word, he would come off that set and I'd be like, cause we were going to talk shit. I'm like, let me unplug his mic quick. <laughs> 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 I wish they would do, I don't know why we haven't done a movie or a reboot. I mean, if they could reboot Saved by the Bell. <laughs> a Team Wolf reboot or a movie. Would be fantastic. Any the whole, I, ca- the whole cast is on board. Yeah, I mean, everyone loves these characters. We know, have had since we launched our Instagram, so many people ask us why aren't they doing season seven? Yeah. They're like, uh, like very seriously, MTV. why are they not? Make this yeah, happen. <laughs> we were like, we don't have that kind of power, but we feel you. I know yeah, we I do. The same, the, you know, my Instagram is private and literally says if I don't know you please don't request me like no nobody wants to see what I made for dinner or like my kinder school uniform so (laughs) but yet I'll constantly get dms probably maybe once or twice a month about the show and asking could you guys I'm like if I had the authority honey we'd be in season 12 right now yeah (laughs) (laughs) three spinoffs but yeah I don't know why we're not and Joe I was with Joe Janier the other day or talking with Joe and same thing. I'm like, why, why not? Like, I wish we were all, cause I was in my old office shooting something for him. And I was like, oh, just to be, and he's like, look at all these clothes. I'm like, we bought every piece of clothing in this room. The wardrobe department was, it felt like, at, it felt like an amazing shrine to the show, especially yeah. after y'all put the mannequins up. There was like no, a dread. Was Danny Flores. I came in. If y'all do not know who Danny Flores is, first of all, he's the most beautiful man you've ever seen in your life. That checks out. He's my <laughs> he's my costume supervisor, my sister, my keep me in line. <laughs> and I come in one day and he has, first of all, changed all of the lighting in our office to these giant lanterns. So when you walk in, it's like restoration hardware or like you're at a <laughs> And then he had gotten all of these mannequins and dressed like our most iconic costumes on these mannequins. Yeah. And I came in the office and I thought, you have nothing else to do. (laughs) 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 But it was so cool because we did so many tours and I would have never thought to do that. Like he really did such a beautiful job. And anytime we did a tour, everybody would be like, this costume, this costume. That was Danny. Danny did that and set up the lighting because he said I looked harsh in fluorescence. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) the first time Will gave us a set tour, I was like, we have to go to wardrobe. Yeah. We have to see it. And there was actually, I don't know if you remember, but there was times while you guys were filming, uh, I'd see it still and I was like, Will, can you figure out what dress that is for me before it comes up? Because... I really, really want that dress. I always try to find out when you guys ask me. And then I'm like, sometimes I would just 
forget because it's so many, so many clothes. And then I'm like, I feel like a dick when someone asks. And I'm like, if you let me go find the continuity book. <laughs> there are giant binders somewhere with everything in them. Yeah, I loved it because I got the advantage and could order it before everyone else found out. Before it before it before it before it before it before the needle bump that yeah. I was talking about. Yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, I love Lydia's wardrobe so much. And one time we got to be extras for a scene and I showed up with a floral. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but yeah, I started oh, like dressing more her? like, huh? Did I tell you you were dressed like her? Yeah, I had to go change. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, dress too much like what she's wearing. And I was like, oh, that's such a compliment. <laughs> I'm so not excited. even mad I have to change. Like, that's... Right. <laughs> Yeah. When, when we were extras on the uh, lacrosse field, I wore, that was the first time I think that we got to be extras and I wore a leather jacket. Cause I was like, everybody in Beacon Hills wears a leather jacket. So I feel like I'm going to fit in. <laughs> that was the worst because, so I don't have Twitter or anything like that. I mean, I barely know how to use my Instagram. So, so Jeff, for some reason would be like, put so-and-so in a leather jacket, put so And for some reason, one night, I'm like, I'm going to look at Twitter. While the show was airing, and somebody was like, oh, must be another bad guy. He's got a black leather jacket. And I was like, and I screamed, <laughs> like, I said, did Jeff? And I was like, I told you it's too much. Like, what are they, the T-birds? Like, <laughs> like, why you have to let me do something else to make them look menacing. Like, just because he's wearing a black leather jacket doesn't mean they're going to like, Dance. <laughs> Here come the jets. Here yeah. come the jets. Like, was, I'm like, Jeff, they're tearing me apart. <laughs> like, what did the costume designer fall asleep or some shit? And I was like, she did not. She gets overridden. Or sometimes she has a boozy lunch. <laughs> <laughs> it could be either one of those two things. In fact, the first one may have led up to the second. <laughs> So I was wondering, uh, Will did manage to get me a couple costume pieces from the show. And I noticed one of them is Styles' outfit from uh, Formality. And it still has like dirt on it. It's like the suit and from the dance. Oh, like okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed it still has like dirt on it. Did you guys just usually like leave that on there in case you need to reshoot just to make it like. Absolutely. It we never wash when there's blood, dirt, or something's ripped or really costume specific like that. We bag it and tag it like that because if we ever have to reshoot it and match it, it's just easier that way. <laughs> <laughs> I like that bag it and tag it like it's CSI Beacon Hills. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so. I think the only other thing we wanted to ask was whether you had any upcoming projects you wanted to talk about. Nothing big. I just, the two that I just finished and I have something for Universal in the summer. Everybody calm down. It's like, bring it on seven. I'll run into one of those sequels. Um, well, you know what, guys? I'll keep you posted. <laughs> That's okay. I, mean, no, I don't have any. I don't have anything big coming up right now. I wish. I wish it was like the Team Wolf reboot, but we'll uh, see. We can dream and hope, and hopefully one day. Uh, Look, I'm working on it, honey. I'm working on it. <laughs> one day MTV will not show 23 hours of ridiculousness, oh my God. and they'll actually be like, "Oh, we need real content." <sighs> MTV is going to wake up one day and realize they made the biggest mistake of their life. And then they're going to text Teen Wolf and be like, you up. And then they're, yeah, then it's just going to, it's going to be like, no time has passed. (laughs) I would love that. But let me tell you, if there's any developments, you guys will be the first ones to know. Thank you. It's a a group effort. And I think everybody really showed up and showed out for six years because not, there wasn't, we all wanted to be there. 
everybody wanted to be there. Even when it was rough, we all wanted to be there. And I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times, that is Jeff Davis. So, I mean, I think we, even when it was tough, everybody stayed for him. And if, if something would have happened and Jeff would have walked, I think we all would have went with him. I mean, there's, you just don't, especially not in this business, you don't get to work with many people like that. And not just because he's a genius, but he's an, a stellar human being. So getting to be in that environment and create this content and put it out to the world with people that you just love creating with, it does not get much better. Definitely. It definitely does not. And Jeff is very much one of the lead from the front type oh, of yeah. type of bosses where, especially like if you know, you're working hard it's because Jeff is working just as hard, if not harder, because there are plenty of times when we'd be leaving set at like two o'clock in the morning from the stage. And it's like, I'd peek into the writer's room, Jeff's still at his, yep. and he's working on the next day scenes or, or the stuff for next week. And it's like, and I feel like when you have a boss like that, it just makes everyone work so much harder. Cause you're like, he is putting in the time for us. So we need to, we have to put in the time for yeah. him and, and the show, I mean, it's just, for me, perfection because of that. Everyone works so hard because you know that you know that everyone else is working just as hard, that no yeah. one's slacking off. It's like everyone's like, well, they're working hard, so I gotta work hard. If I'm working hard, they're working hard. And it was, yeah. it was just wonderful. It was wonderful. I mean, it sucked a lot sometimes. But, <laughs> you know, and, because you're right. Because you're, I mean, you're right. It's like, oh, you remember how we didn't sleep or how our turnaround was non-existent sometimes? I don't think I slept for like all of 2012. <laughs> there's like six months I just don't remember <laughs> so, I mean, my kids fine though so I guess it's okay <laughs> awesome. awesome thank you guys so much yes thank you oh, no thank you so fun so much fun you. this was awesome oh, and I'm so happy to get to finally meet you <laughs> you guys this was great um sorry I was late I'm Puerto Rican. That's how we run. So no <laughs> this no was worries. a really fun conversation. It's yes. going to be great. If you know um, anyone else that uh, wants to talk about the show, we're so excited to like interview anyone who's ever worked on it. So yeah. anyone, we're you know. having an amazing time. There you go. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. We've had an amazing time so far. Like yes. everyone we've talked to has been amazing and it's just the love for the show is still very real and there's still a lot of it. So it's, it's quite wonderful and getting yeah. to talk to everyone who made Teen Wolf so awesome, you know, yeah. it's, it's just the best. And that's how we became friends with Will. So it has an extra special place in our hearts because yeah. we just showed up one day and we were fans and be, you know, seven years later, we're still best friends. No, that's so. my, I don't remember Sabine. Well, she had, reached out to me, this girl about, she liked the clothes on the show and she was working for this virtual magazine and we met and we ended up, and we're still, she just called me today, like we're still friends. <laughs> so, and it was from Timo, she used to come to the set every day and catalog the clothes and she would interview me for the magazine and we ended up just staying close, you know? We know good people when we see them, don't we, Will? Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much. I'm going to go get super stoned. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much. You're yes. so great. Have, Have a wonderful night. Here. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 Oh, she was oh so that was cool. great. That was awesome. That was really, really good. That was great. She's always the best. She's always been amazing and fun and the exuberance in life. It can be a little, like, it can be a little nervous, like, talking to someone who we didn't really get to meet mm -hmm. much yeah. 
but yeah, she was just so great. Oh my God. She's Barbara's great. Always, always down. You know, she's always laughing and talking to people and talking. And some really cute stories. Okay. So I have a couple of thoughts here from the episode. They're a little spoilery. I do not like the moment when Allison gets her jacket back and we have the creepy werewolf POV. Uh, I agree. I feel the same. Because I'm like, okay, that's supposed to be Derek. I mean, there's really, we haven't introduced Peter yet. You know, like the alpha is not a thing yet. We got another episode or two for that to happen. So it's like, it's it's, it's Peter, but I'm like, are, why are you one? It's Derek. Uh, why, it's right here. It, yeah, Derek. I'm sorry. Why are you watching Allison? We only see wolf POV like this when someone is wolfed out. So I was like, what's going on here? Why are you wolfed out at school? And yes, I just don't like it. I feel like it, it's just, it's a moment. And there's, I, I think there's, I've forgotten about this one, but there's clearly another moment that I'll talk about in a second that we do. But I feel like it's it's a lie to the audience that it's just, here is a spooky, weird, mysterious, whatever thing you're trying to do that shouldn't exist. Like there's no reason for Derek to be watching her in yeah. wolf form. They just, yeah. they, it's just supposed to I be mean, creepy. Or at all yeah at all I, I like think. it doesn't it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense yeah i mean because i mean he's like i mean like the hunters know who he is right. i mean he's not a mystery to them so it's like why is he i mean like i feel like he's getting relevant information from scott about allison and the argents and all that so he doesn't really need to get that close to her so i i, I just don't like that and the other one that the, the one that i was referencing was in season whichever season it is where Maya Eschett's character, Meredith, and she was a banshee, you know, but there's the bit where Brunsky tells the kids that Maya or that, that Meredith, <laughs> you know, that she killed herself and it's not true because we discover a couple episodes later or the next episode or whatever, that Meredith is responsible for all this stuff happening and that her death was a fake out. But when Brunsky is telling Scott and the others about Meredith killing herself, we cut to a shot of Brunsky like unwinding the sheet from her. It's neck. a beautiful shot. It's a beautiful shot. It is. It's it, great. it is. But the problem is, is it it's a lie because she didn't Cheating. hang herself. It's a cheat. She didn't hang herself, you know, and there's no reason because all the background story that we're not getting that she and Brunsky are working together the whole time. There's no reason to stage something that didn't happen because no one nobody was no, right there's yeah there's, there's no, no one to to see that moment there's no witness yeah there's no in, yeah but except for the audience and it's right. just for the audience i feel like so, it it's something that filmmakers sometimes use because they've seen it used in situations where these kinds of what seem to be flashbacks are actually just the characters imagining it and i the, the problem with that though is that there There has to be other instances of showing things that the characters imagine yeah. that differ from reality. Right. So, so that it's established for the audience that it doesn't, that you're not seeing an objective flashback yeah. of here's what happened in the past. You yeah. know, for instance, like ep- episodes of TV that have like, different characters' perspectives on things. Like the episode of The X-Files with uh, Luke Wilson, right, where Mulder and Scully are each telling their version of events. So when you see a flashback in that episode, you know to take it with a grain of salt because you have, well, in Mulder's case, an unreliable narrator. Right. Right? Um, (laughs) For Supernatural, um, as Tall Tales. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It was, it was great both times. And in, in a situation like that, it's totally acceptable 
to have what has the trappings of a flashback, but isn't really a flashback per se. Yeah. Right. Um, or if it's like a detective show where we're seeing the detective imagine what the crime scene might have looked like while it was happening, where you know, as the audience, it's established that what I'm seeing isn't objective fact. I'm seeing what's in this character's head. The problem is that in the case of this show, they never use that except like in this one instance, which is what makes it a cheat. Yeah, it's, and I remember, you know, I was still the assistant at the time. And I remember, but even as the assistant, like in my limited capacity, I fought it. And I was just like, we're, we're lying. Like, this is not, we're only showing this to make the audience believe something that isn't true. It's not the characters, like, witnessing something, and they, based on what they witnessed, have a belief that then the audience can latch on to. It's right, just, they misinterpret. They misinterpret. Or... Right, this isn't a moment of misinterpretation. It's just, we're showing something that didn't happen you know, and just to make the audience believe something. And the only, I, it's not, I wouldn't say I excuse it, but I, and I haven't yet seen that episode. It's been quite a while, but I believe that when Brunsky is telling the story, we see a shot of Scott before we see that shot. So in the most generous interpretation, you could say that is Scott imagining what, what it might have Brunsky like. would have seen. I don't like to be that generous, but because um, I'm, because <laughs> it's, it's just a cheat. It's a cheat. It's just, you know, we needed the audience to believe something so that we could, we could, we could reveal later that Meredith is actually alive. And so we could show this really beautiful shot. It's a wonderful shot. I mean, Dave Daniels shot the hell out of it. Maya Eshet. It's beautiful. Brunsky, Aaron Hendry, Aaron Hendry and Maya Eshet do a fantastic job. You know, it's like, it's, it's wonderful, but it's just, it's a cheat. And it's just, it's, I I just hate cheats in movies because there's a, I he remember, does. He complains about it regularly. I do. It, it's 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 just it's, it's one of his pet peeves. It's, yeah, it's a big pet peeve, and it's just like I remember Christopher McQuarrie was talking on a podcast or, or something like that, and he was saying that like when it comes to stuff like that, that's the that's the filmmaker or storyteller saying instead because what what the storyteller should be saying is I hope I can fool you, but what in a moment like that the storyteller is saying I hope you are a fool. You know, type of thing that I, that, you know, it, it, the context for this is a little bit different, but I can't, what was he talking about? I don't remember, but, oh, he was talking about usual suspects. So, but then the second thing I wanted to talk about, oh, oh yeah, but I didn't get to that part. But uh, my headcanon for it is, is that's actually Peter Hale's POV because he is the alpha already. He's already killed Laura Hale. And what I would, the way I like to imagine it is that um, he is just kind of getting the lay of the land of what's around Scott, because he wants Scott for his pack. So he is seeing where Scott's weaknesses are. He's trying to see who could be an asset or whatever, you know? So that's that's my, my headcanon generous interpretation is that that's actually Peter Hale watching Allison because he's writing down his little werewolf diary. Like, oh, he, oh, oh, he's dating, you know, he's dating uh, this Allison Argent girl. I should remember that. I bet that'll come in handy later. But, well, um, but he still needs Styles to correct that password and username. He does still need to, <laughs> yes, he does. Uh, oh, that seems so good. That's but, a great scene. What, speaking of headcanons, just wait till we get to that episode in season three with, shit, what is that character's name supposed to be? There's... Is this 3A or B? Are there ninjas? I, Can you give us no, descriptions? The, 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 it's basically where Scott and Siles go to Peter and they're like, why is Derek Derek? 
Oh, and he right. was like, here's oh. why. Which, first of all, I mean, I was like, how, what more do you need to know? Like, everything we've ever learned about him is just pure tragedy porn. Right. So I yeah. have no idea yeah. why they felt like they still needed an explanation. But it's like, also just, I, my secret ahead canon is that that story is true. It's just about Peter. I know. And uh, did anyone ever actually cool. ask Derek? Did anyone no. actually ever, like, address, does Derek no, ever address only, it? it's only Styles, Scott, and Peter. And like, the thing is. And Cora. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Cora's and, there. Uh, yeah, and it's just like, you're right. Peter tells a story, but no one's ever like, should we verify? Right. And uh, the, the, this is the I thing. Yeah. It actually relates to what you were saying. Like, <laughs> we on Tumblr had a discussion about this, Calissa and I, <laughs> where Calissa presented this theory and I was like, I think that's a better interpretation of this story. I don't think that's where it's going. And the reason I thought it wasn't where it's going is because this connects to what we were discussing before, but we already see in the flashback what was really happening because Peter says it's Derek's idea. And then in the flashback, it's Peter's idea. So yeah. I was like, I don't think that that's the direction they're actually going because yeah. they've already shown us a discrepancy between the story that Peter's telling verbally and the objective flashback that we are seeing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is unfortunate because I actually think that interpretation is a lot better. It also aligns a lot more with what we know about Peter, what we know about Derek and what's established in On Fire, which we will get to in a very special episode, capital V S E, (laughs) very special episode. Um, it, it, it aligns more cleanly with Peter's character. No, it definitely um, I was very been, proud of that theory. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it that's makes a, a really lot of cool sense. theory. I mean, it's a really cool theory, and had it been true, or even for your headcanon, it, it makes Peter more nuanced. You know, that he's telling this very sad story, but he can't, he, it's like he can't bring himself to tell the truth to somebody. He can't, so he's, he's, giving all of this backstory to someone else when he, uh, I hope that he would be like, I would, I wish I could tell this story the right way, but instead he's using Derek. Also, he's a manipulative little bitch. And so, yeah, like, you is. know, so he's, he's manipulating people to get something out of this mm-hmm. story, but it's, but it's great that he's telling the truth that he's telling the story is all real all the beats are real. And he just changed names. I feel like something like that makes him, more vulnerable. I mean, he's still a monster. He's he's still awful, but still, you know, you always like having, you know, you you want your villains to be nuanced and and not just that, that mustache twirling. Just, What's just that? the slightest twinge of guilt. Yeah. You know, so that he 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 does tell the story, but he attributes it to someone else. And actually, in the episode, you know, it, uh, there's a they specifically talk about that Derek is on the basketball team, and in a different episode in season two. We act, we see a picture of young Peter yeah. on the basketball team. Yeah. yeah. And because that was one of the things that Calissa said was that it would be such a great callback to that, that like we actually had a hint that it's Peter's story because we saw that Peter was photographed as part of the basketball team. Uh, yeah. Of the basketball team. And in On Fire, there's a bit about how Derek loves swimming, but he's never going to try joining the swim team because to him, it just, it doesn't make sense to try to engage in activities that are going to get him close to people because being close to people is dangerous. Yeah. And so I do, I I really like this idea, you know, that, that the werewolf families discourage you from joining a sports team. And Peter was just like, 
that, I'm going to be on the basketball team. Peter would 100% do that. Anyway. Oh, yeah, I know. And that's exactly what makes it such a good theory. The it first absolutely thing, works. When you mentioned that, you know, Derek liking to swim and like wanting to join, but he wouldn't join the swim team. The first thing that popped in my head was from the Incredibles when Dash wants to join the track team, but mm-hmm. his dad's like, you can't do that because, because that's what I was saying is like, it must be hard for someone as physical as Derek to want to excel physically. But the problem is he's so much beyond everyone else and i was just imagining like him on the on the swim team swimming but he's like just way ahead and like his parents like like reel it in reel it in but not too slow not too slow you know like that scene yeah. of incredibles at the end and uh, a solid you know, second place solid second place <laughs> you know and so that's that's what i was imagining but kate um, is actually the school lifeguard by the way who that is how kate argent oh that is that's actually how is that in they, the book yeah I gotta read this book. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> read this that. Book. That's the whole thing. Is like Derek has this rule that he's not going to be on the swim team, but he he will sometimes just go and swim like for fun at the school pool because it's available like after school hours yeah. for for students to swim in. And she is a lifeguard there, and so she like gets in the water and kind of startles him, and that that's. That's how that whole thing uh, starts in the book. Technically, she is a substitute lifeguard at the school, which is a reference to To, when she says about Jackson, where she's like, ooh, if I were a student or maybe just a substitute teacher. So that the the book actually kind of plays with that a little bit, that she's actually saying that because she's so brazen about what she did that she'll just, Mm -hmm. like, say stuff. Well, it's it's so easy to be brazen when you say shit like that and no one in your family is like that's an eyelash what no (laughs) one is bothered yeah so i mean allison should clearly have been like what i would have been real if i had an aunt that was like i would definitely one of your classmates i'd be like i am really uncomfortable well allison did say she felt more like an older sister yeah she's just like that's accurate that's 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 true doesn't actually associate like, wow, she's way older than me. She shouldn't say that. She she That's actually true. does. I'm sure I have a gif of it somewhere. Allison makes a face when she says that, and it is a great face. And I would just like yes, to it is. tip my hat to Crystal Reed. I I want to, I feel like we should pull up that, that gif because it's a great face. It's a great combination of like discomfort, misplaced humor, and like, I, I, I don't know. It's, it, it's great. Her reaction it's is great. great. The other thing I want to talk about was in the the scene, in the math scene. Oh, it's either the math scene. Crap, I forgot to write down one scene. It's either the math scene. Yeah, no, it's the math scene. I'm sorry. When uh, when Lydia, it's the math scene where Lydia and Scott are both at the board. Lydia, I feel like, is giving Scott some serious eyeballs. And she does have they, eyeballs. I, she does. She is, but she would, okay, she was giving some, some serious eye. I sex. I sex. She's giving him some serious I uh, the I sex, and all I could think about was their makeout scene later. And I was like, is she already? Because she's a manipulator, you know. But also, she's setting him up as her backup because she yeah, says, right. you know, it's, yes, that's that what I was... Jackson's not going to be able to play at peak performance, as she yes. says. So she needs Scott to step up. Scott cannot back out of the game. She needs him to help bring them to victory. So yeah, she is kind of setting up like, you know, if he puts Jackson out of commission for the season, she's going to go for Scott. Right. Yeah. That, we, was, we, that was very articulate compared to my rambling. If um, you're wondering when we I talked rambling. about it, it was in our interview with Jeff. 
Oh, okay. Because he brought up the makeout, remember? Yes, yes. All right, listeners, you'll get to that in (laughs) 10 episodes. It's interesting how Teen Wolf, the TV show, and the book On Fire play with setups and payoffs in different forms of media. Calissa, I think you were saying that Derek talking about Scott transforming on the field and murdering people was an interesting setup for a later season, right? And I think this is a great setup because in season six, people do find out and they do come after them. So that is great because Derek does say here in the second episode that if every, if they find out, everyone will be after us, not just the people who know. And it is great because we go through five seasons of the show with Beacon Hills just being devastated by constant supernatural attacks. And then finally in the last season, the normal people are just like, you know what? this shit. Monroe gets everyone together and is like, we gotta stop these monsters from killing us. Yeah, and I just love all the setups in Teen Wolf that do have payoffs later. They are good. Some are planned, some are not planned, but uh, is a lot of times hard to tell the difference just because it's, you know, you're working on something, some kind of story beat, and then you don't realize later on you're looking for a solution to a story problem. You're like, oh, wait, what about that thing we did in season three? And it's like, oh, that, that's a pay. It, it perfectly pays off. And people think we knew what we were doing the whole time. Well, I think <laughs> a good writer is still someone who looks back at what's already happened and sees how they can incorporate that and move on from there. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, there has been shows before where they just completely ignore what's come before it if there's different writers and stuff. And I just feel like that's so lazy or selfish to be like, I don't care what's happened before. This is the story I want to tell. So I'm not paying attention to any of that. Honestly, a big part of fandom is the, is like the writing equivalent of backseat driving. It's just like, no, 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 no. You read a, you ran a retcon back there. What are you doing? You know, it's just like, (laughs) you know, because we, that's the thing about fans, we will remember. Yes. Because we've seen it 17 times. There are gift sets for that. Exactly. Trust me, I got plenty of tweets about... Retcons? Retcons and forgetting stuff or this or that. And Do I, yeah, do I need to explain what, what a retcon is? Should you I? probably should. Okay, so retcon is kind of a fandom term for when something in the story contradicts something that had previously been established. So it's sort of an initialism of retroactively contradicting. Oh, I thought it was retroactive continuity, that you were changing the (laughs) continuity retroactively. And an interesting bit of continuity with the series is that we never actually meet Greenberg, and Kate has a fun theory about it. But what you're saying is a couple of seasons from now, when Coach gets that card and the mug from Greenberg, he actually bought the mug, wrote the card, and gave it to himself. While on a bender. While on a bender with blow. Does that not sound plausible to you because it sounds perfectly plausible to me yes. no it, it it sounds very plausible knowing all the things that coach is going to get up to over the rest of this series it's like yeah yeah and they just go along with it oh do you think he keeps his blow in his whistle speaking of things that would be mildly spoilery but it, like, it does um it does Catherine, hold powders Catherine at the end of cruel intentions they take it off and there's just like the coke in there yeah yeah and like Ryan Philippe in Cruel Intentions, Derek is brooding and taciturn. And Kate, you think all werewolves are like this because they can hear heartbeats and pick up on chemo signals, right? That is supported once we get Malia's entrance into the show, at least in the beginning. She's a were-coyote instead of a werewolf, but you know, she is a very blunt, very literal character. And I that's love a that that's her. a really good point. And she 
she kind of crystallizes that, right? Because she hasn't even had any practice interacting with humans. Right. Really. Yeah, that's a really good point. So you kind of, Derek is like almost as bad as Malia, not quite, because he has a little more experience interacting with humans. But still, he he definitely has trouble communicating the way humans communicate. And actually, if I remember correctly, and this might be something interesting to bring up to Nancy Holder if we get a chance to talk to her, but if I remember correctly in On Fire, there's a a little bit, because the book changes perspectives, but one of those perspectives is Derek's. And there's, there's actually a bit in there where he says or thinks something like, it's so hard to parse meaning in the way that humans talk to each other because there's tone and there's sarcasm and hyperbole and you know Derek's way of communicating is like you're gonna get on the field and kill someone and then I'm going to kill you it's just like very clear-cut cause and effect there Mm -hmm. and to him that makes the most sense it's like if you're going to cause carnage I am going to turn you into carnage to prevent further murders I'm sure this is clear to you. Yeah. All right. So, Kate, where are we headed next week? The next episode is Pack Mentality. Scott prepares for his first date with Allison while also trying to find out if he killed someone after having witnessed the attack in a dream. That sounds like a lot of fun. I can't wait to see what happens. And that concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. And don't forget to find us at patreon.com forward slash RTBH Podcast for more awesome exclusives. Join us here next week for our look at season one, episode three, Pack Mentality and discuss the show's amazing score with composer Dino Menigan. Rate and review us on iTunes. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.